Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. This is episode 286 of the Real Man Colon A Movie Podcast. On this week's episode, Chase and Joel will take a look at Fast and Furious' first attempt at a spinoff film, Hobbs and Shaw, as well as going over some movie news and movie trailers that dropped throughout the week and continuing their journey to the best films of the decade, looking at the best films of 2010. All that and more on today's Real Me In. What is going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Real Me and Cole in the Movie Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chase Lee. And uh, it, hey, listen, if you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Uh, what this podcast is all about, it says it in the title. Uh, this is a movie podcast, so if you love talking about movies or you love uh, hear, hear, you know, hearing two boring people such as uh, myself and Joel talk about movies and uh, you want to come join in the conversation, come on in. Uh, we are welcoming and we love to you know, bring in new people, you know, returning listeners, you guys are the best. This is episode 286. Uh, we're on the road. Uh, 14 more episodes until episode 300. It is, whew, it just blows my mind. Uh, but yes, uh, as stated at the top, we will be going over Hobbs and Shaw, as uh, Joel will want to call it something else, but he needs to restrain himself because this is a professional podcast. So Chase, Hobbs Chase will hunt me down and kill me if that, I do that. That <laughs> may not be an exaggeration. Uh, so uh, Hobbs and Shaw is what we're going to be going over, uh, and you know it's not going to really take that long. So we figure we tack on the uh, um, best films of 2010 as well. Uh, if you guys have been keeping track. Uh, we've been kind of sprinkling them throughout the year in our episodes. We're taking a look back at some of the, the years in film from 2010 all the way up until now to prepare ourselves for the best films of the decade. It's going to be quite a show. And, of course, the movie news and movie trailers. So uh, before I throw it over uh, to Joel and uh, have him start uh, the episode here, um, you know, if you guys could spread this episode around and let people know about it, whether you're listening to on CastBox, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, iTunes, wherever you get your stuff, uh, please let people know. This is your favorite movie podcast. <laughs> See, I'm slurring my words. I don't know what's going on. Uh, my, your favorite movie podcast to listen to. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and the reason why I'm, I'm stumbling here a little bit is my neighbors are um, currently having a party, and <laughs> the music is very loud. Uh, yes, uh, I am in... One of those neighborhoods where literally every house, including our own, uh, just loves to have parties and blast music, and I kind of like that because that means no one's going to call the cops on us, so that's lovely. Uh, so yes, uh, if you hear me stumbling, uh, I apologize. Uh, I have one thing. I have this going into one ear, and I- I'm listening to that in the other ear. So <laughs> this is my life tonight. All right. So Joel, what is uh, what is going on uh, in your world, sir? We have entered, um, you know, a new month, August. You know, school. Is starting up again, but don't worry about it because you and I are old and we, uh, you know, we we don't do school like the youngins do anymore. You know, you're doing you know college courses, but that's a whole different ball game. And so you know the the kiddos are 
back in school, and you can definitely feel it. Uh, elementary schools are clogging up traffic everywhere. It's uh, it's really great stuff. So, uh, so yeah, uh, I don't I don't envy them. Uh, my college <laughs> courses are definitely not normal by any means. It's very different. Um, I just wanted to say too that uh, that somehow I missed this. Um, I don't think that I took like took conscious note of of what number episode I came on officially. But I have now been on the show for 110 episodes. I think that's uh, rough, about right. Roughly, I think I, I, I may have missed a couple uh, here and there since since we started. But um, roughly 110 episodes. Joel, I have a serious question. Serious question to ask you. Um, was it embarrassing to tell your parents you wasted all of your time? doing this podcast in 110 episodes uh were they like upset with your life choices like how did that how did that conversation happen uh yeah i'm living on the street these days no i'm just kidding. <laughs> just like joel um, no, this is too much man get out of the house no they know i enjoy it and and i do i've been over I to your house and recorded some so they are very yes. aware uh aware <laughs> very um yeah it's it's been a lot of fun it's been it's been so much fun and i and i really I really do uh, appreciate you for for letting me do this. It's it's been a it's been a fun ride. So I first came on the episode officially. This is official. I mean, I had been on a few times. I think three or four before that, um, just as a guest. But the first episode that I was ever on as an official host. Do you remember what movies we were discussing? I want to say, was it Logan or was it before that? No, it was after that. After that. I, I was on the Logan episode, but I was right. not officially a co-host mm. until we talked about Ghost in the Shell. That's right. And Boss Baby. And the Boss Baby. Oh, my God. <laughs> we saw God. the Boss Baby together. At 10 a.m. on a Saturday, by the way. 10 a.m. Which, on a Saturday, which, this... which, was a, which was a trek for me because I had to get up at like 7.30 for the Boss Baby. Hey, I did too because so. we uh, we both uh, took the bus at that or the train <laughs> at the time. And so uh, w- what's even crazier is I'm still doing stuff like that. Uh, I have the yeah. Angry Birds 2 tomorrow at 11 a.m., uh, so pray for me. Uh, thoughts and prayers uh, will well, be Well, it's interesting. I've been hearing pretty good things about that, but we'll, <sighs> well, see. Just, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Joel, just stop. Don't, don't <laughs> have my hopes up like that. I just want to go in and feel depressed, and maybe I'll be surprised. Uh, but, yeah, I'm still doing that today. Uh, to this day, sh- shenanigans like that. Uh, but yeah, uh, no, we uh, we have a great time doing this, and um, to be honest with you, I'm glad I found a co-host. It took forever to find one. Uh, I did this by myself for the longest time. I even did an episode in a hospital bed when I was admitted after one of my uh, Crohn's episodes. So hey, I, it's just it's better conversation to have two people, uh, even sometimes three people uh, in a room. Uh, rather than just talking to yourself, it um, I'm sure people found it boring. Uh, I appreciate the people that have been listening uh, from the beginning, but uh, I'm glad I found someone to to talk to. So, um, yeah. Uh, but uh, how, how was your how's your week been? You know, it's um, you know we're about a month or so out before we start getting slammed with all the uh, uh, Oscar movies and stuff. Uh, so is this like the calm before the storm for you you just uh it very it very much is yeah i didn't have an eventful week at all i just kind of um sat around watching a lot of downton abbey um my parents took a short trip in the middle of the week so i i utilized that time i also saw um i mean i did have a screening wednesday night i saw the peanut butter falcon which is the new movie with uh shia labeouf pretty good pretty good i liked it i reviewed that for dallas movie screening so y'all can go see it now because it opened it's weird. Uh, it opened in Dallas. I think that we're one of the first cities that got it, which is not normal for us. Um, 
just to let people know kind of around the country, I guess, when movies open in like L.A. and New York, um, it it almost never opens at the same time in Dallas. Uh, usually what will happen is it will take about a week to get to places like Dallas if Dallas is lucky. And obviously Chicago, um, I think I think Austin usually gets them. Um, and then – or maybe it's Houston. I know that there's a place in Texas that usually gets them uh, exactly the week after, but never Dallas. And so this is rare in that it's open in L.A., New York, and Dallas, and that's it. It doesn't open in Chicago until the end of the month um, and other places. Yeah, it's, it's going to take a while, but it's pretty good. If it comes near you, definitely check it out. It's kind of a Mark Twainish uh, story about a, um, uh, a kid – well, not a kid, a young man with Down syndrome played by an actor who actually has Down syndrome who wants to uh, become a professional wrestler and Shia LaBeouf plays kind of a petty criminal that he accidentally come across as, comes across um, – I'm stumbling over words too – uh, he actually comes across, accidentally comes across, and they kind of go on an adventure together to make that happen for him. And anyway, really, really kind of sweet. It has some distractions in the narrative that I thought were annoying, but it's pretty good. Uh, yesterday was huge. I saw four movies, or I watched four movies, I should say. Um, I guess I can mention two of them right now. Um, so, uh, because we're not reviewing them, they did come out this week, and those are Dora and the Lost City of Gold and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and I like both of them. I did not anticipate liking Dora, but it's fun, kind of Indiana Jonesy, and um, it's sort of a light, I guess, but still pretty fun. And then Scary Stories, pretty good. It's it's pretty uneven. Um, it's an interesting mashup experiment for the stories uh, that it originated from, but it's creepy, and that's all you can ask for and it's creepy in a visually kind of complex way that i didn't anticipate there's a lot of um drawn out long long takes and really vibrant uses of color and um a really complex sound design this stuff isn't easy this movie makes it look easy and that that can definitely not be dis, uh you know uh discounted so it's a uh, yeah, pretty good movie. So anyway, uh, other than that, again, just catching up with Downton Abbey um, or catching back up. I'm rewatching the series and loving it and can't wait for the movie. So that's basically it for me. <laughs> I didn't I didn't really have anything else this week happen. So a, a pretty a pretty light week indeed. Um, yeah, I think for I, I didn't do any um, screenings this week. I could have had an opportunity to. Uh, go to one every single night, including the one that Joel went to. Um, my fiance's parents, I guess my soon-to-be in-laws, uh, they just left to, to D.C. Uh, this afternoon. And so we spent oh. every night with them this week uh, going to dinner So um, before they headed off. Because I, I know that's not easy. It's not easy for her. Uh, I experienced it last year with my parents going. Uh, even down to a point where <laughs> my parent or my mom was like packaging up stuff, and if you guys remember when I did the nun episode, I recorded mm. it in my parents' uh, warehouse as they were packing up stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was helping them do that. So yeah, uh, so now both of our parents are gone, and now we will just cry in the corner, um, you know, and uh, together now. Um, but no, is she? Um, is she very very sad? I was sad too, but uh, yeah, that's what I did all week. Uh, we didn't really watch anything. Well, I take that back. Because uh, 
uh, my wonderful fiance just loves to uh, subject me to stuff that she has grown up with, which is always a pleasure because I have no idea what I'm getting into. Um, she decided to make us watch all of Veronica Mars because she wants to watch mm. the new season. I was like, well, um, I would like to see uh, the originals if we did that, but it's still daunting because it's like 40 plus episodes. So I think even more than that. And so plus a movie and um, yeah. She's... Well, I don't know if the is, are the seasons. Oh, I guess. Yeah. The seasons that would be 40. More. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it... were the seasons that big. I think since back in the day, you know how back in the day, like uh, most series had like twenty something episodes a piece. I think oh, that was around yeah, yeah, yeah. that mark. Um, I like I said, I don't know the real number, but if I still see anything beyond twenty, my anxiety starts running. I'm like, oh, we gotta get through all this. However, I wasn't really into it at first. We are in episode four, and I'm I'm, I'm digging it. Um, you know, I I always like Kristen Bell, and I think it's a fun little like detective show and. I will never believe for a second that she could play a high schooler because she was like 22 <laughs> when she did season one. And it's like <laughs> chill. Uh, but then again, they had a, a couple of the others um, in the high school that looked like they were like 35. I was like, guys, come on. Can we can we cast a little better, please? Yeah, Jason, I've seen the first season and I've seen the movie. Uh, I still need to. I didn't have I don't think it was on any streaming services when I caught up with the first season. Um, I think that I rented it from somewhere, maybe, maybe from where I worked before I worked there. And so I didn't really have access to the other two seasons cause that store, it wasn't my store, but it was another store, um, didn't have the other seasons. Right. So I was trying to catch up with it before the, before seeing the movie. I didn't see the movie in theaters, but yeah, Jason Doring who plays, um, what's his name? Uh, I think starts with an L. Anyway, um, maybe maybe it doesn't start with an L at all. I don't know who I'm thinking of. Uh, plays, I think one. It plays one of the characters. Did not look at all like he was in high school, and it was, it was just like it was never. They're they're never able to to sell that. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. She didn't even look. So right before she started Veronica Mars, um, Kristen Bell was on an episode of Everwood. Um, briefly, I think, I think it was just a one episode arc where she plays a, um, a high school cheerleader, a cheerleading captain, I think, who is 16 or 17 and gets a, uh, a breast augmentation surgery and it starts, uh, giving her like cramps and stuff anyway. And she, even there, I think she was probably 20. It was a couple of years before Veronica Mars started. And I think actually it's the, uh, the reason that she was able to do Veronica Mars. I think that uh, the producers no- noticed her on that show in that episode, and I think that that's kind of how she got in her foot in the door. Well, and the, um, the only reason I like I, I bring up the whole age thing is because she. Did, I'm just saying, like, she didn't even look like it, right? But like, <laughs> and that was back in the day, and it was even worse uh, back in the day when they did the high school shows. But like, it still happens now with like 13 Reasons Why and Euphoria. I'm like, guys, yeah, these some of these kids are my age. Like, they're they're there's literally a football player. And 13 Reasons Why, that is Joel's and I's age. And it is so distracting to watch because his parents are like, did you do your homework? And you're just like flipping his hair around. He's like, I don't know, man. I got football practice. I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> like, you haven't been in school in like 10 plus years. Uh, so, yeah, it's just um, it's just funny to, uh, to, to witness all this stuff because uh, we're watching so many like high school shows like back to back now. It's just 
it, it's just more noticeable, uh, I guess. But yeah, well, I, even I, even um, I didn't. I decided not to put it in the notes, but there was a bit of casting news this week. Uh, I think it was the only casting news. That's why I didn't include it. Um, Caleb McLaughlin, who plays Lucas on Stranger Things, um, you know, he is he's uh, ostensibly playing like a fourteen-year-old in the show, but in the casting news, literally in the photo of him next to or, or paired with Idris Elba, he's been cast in something with him. Caleb McLaughlin has like a goatee and a mustache, so he's clearly not anywhere close to fourteen. But they're obviously trying to get him uh, to make him look like that. Yeah, it, it's just funny it's wild, the, the links that they go to. Yeah, right. It's pretty. Funny. But yeah, uh, other than that, uh, other than Veronica Mars, uh, I'm sad to disappoint. I, I haven't. Well, I had that mini review uh, for you guys. Uh, then that follow um, the mm-hmm. religious snake thing. Um, <laughs> Mark and I had <laughs> the, the religious uh, snake thing. The religious <laughs> snake thing. Um, yeah, Mark and I had the same thoughts on it. It was. It was fine um yeah. and of course i saw the nightingale too uh but that review drops in a couple weeks uh so uh look out for that joel already knows my thoughts on that but yeah, yeah a bunch of stuff coming down the pipeline for you guys I, I mean i have four movies next week alone like it's 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 insane and i got a couple more after that um it's just because they just they just been coming in uh they're just like all right can you do this on monday okay all right i'll do this on monday <laughs> can you do this one on tuesday Okay, I guess I'll be going to movies two nights in a row, and then Wednesday and Thursday, and then I'm never home. And then the dogs wonder wonder why uh, I I am not home all the time, and they think I'm abusing them. And it's just like, no, 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 it's okay. I'm just uh doing doing the YouTube stuff. And then they uh they want to leave because <laughs> they're like that, that's not important. Um, and then yeah. you go into a room to record, and they start barking. <laughs> that's what they there do. There we go. <laughs> and Jules witnessed it. Like they they are insane. Like if if anything happens outside of a window, and I cover up the windows by the way with uh, with curtains. Joel Joel saw me do it, and it worked for like ninety five percent of the podcast, which I'm excited for because like uh, their barking uh, makes my ears bleed. But if they see anything outside. It is it is an invasion of aliens and everybody's gonna die. Yeah, and then it turns out it's like a speck of dust that like hit the window. (laughs) It's it's crazy, but uh, yeah, Veronica Mars is the only thing I've been watching this week. So uh, yeah, not not as interesting as Joel, but uh, Joel, uh, you know, I do have a light trailer uh, week. Uh, You know, I I only have a couple to talk about, but what's been going on in that news world, man? I mean, you when you sent me the notes, I completely forgot that the first two stories even happened. Like, it's, yeah. everything's just been happening so crazy this week. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, not a whole lot of really high-profile news other than these two. I did include a couple of uh, new directorial acquisitions, I guess you could call them. Directors lining up projects. Uh, we'll get to those in a second. Um, those are quick. But this first one's really interesting, and it's a really great pairing um, of two companies. This is the kind of pairing I like to see, not the Disney-Fox thing that happened. Um, so you have Hulu. On one side, and you have Bleecker Street on the other. They have decided to enter in a mutual streaming deal. Uh, essentially, what is going to happen is by the end of this year, Hulu will house a lot of Bleecker Street titles on their streaming service. Um, it, they're going to come a little bit faster than they usually do to um, uh, to other places where they might stream. And Bleak, Bleecker stuff is Bleecker stuff has gone to like Amazon Prime before, but it usually takes. You know, eight or nine months to get to that point. Uh, this is going to be a lot sooner, although they're not really um, saying how soon. I'm just guessing that it's probably within the period of time it would take to get the movie on DVD and Blu-ray. 
but you have you know pretty high profile titles, especially this year, stuff like Hotel Mumbai with uh, Dev Patel, Je- uh, Jesse Eisenberg and the Art of Self Defense, Elle Fanning and Teen Spirit. Those are some of the biggest Bleeger Street movies so far this year, and they're going to be the, among the first to uh, to to uh, line up on Hulu. So I like this because um, I think that Hulu's streaming service is really good. I've been using it a lot lately, and I think that it's really useful, easy. Um, you know, now that uh, especially now that Disney is is in charge of it, I think it's going to be um, even better probably in the future. They're probably going to. I wouldn't be surprised if they re- redesign it soon. Um, as as a part of that, there's no word on that, but. That's what I'm just – I'm thinking that's probably going to happen pretty soon considering this is a big change and they've got new ownership. Um, and then Bleecker Street is a really good distribution company. I think that they put out really interesting um, product. Maybe not as showy as something like A24, but I think that they're on par with Neon in terms of um, how they – how uh, the, the, the quality – work that they put out um that doesn't always work out in terms of box office for smaller releases like that but they do they do uh do a pretty good job at um at advertising so i think that this is a good plan to get them out there a lot of people use hulu a lot of people will be able to see them now um more readily and uh yeah so i like this I think I'm going to move on really quickly before I have you respond to that to the other streaming news. And this one is something I like a lot less. So, of course, Disney Plus is going to be a thing very, very soon <laughs> in November, actually. And they have re- they have announced uh, plans involving some series to bring them back into the uh, into the fold. Um, and in fact, I missed one in my notes. I just noticed there's another one here. So, all right, they've decided to go th- to go ahead with the Planet of Apes, the P- Planet of the Apes franchise. They're giving us another sequel. I don't want another sequel. The the story was completed in War for the Planet of the Apes pretty well, pretty perfectly, I thought. But the others are that they are doing reboots of four major kids franchises. So, the first one is Night at the Museum. I have no thoughts about that. I've not seen any of the movies. I have no opinions at all. There's Die of a Wimpy Kid, which I gave up on. I th- I think... Did I see the second one? I can't remember if I saw the second one. I know I saw the first one. Didn't really care about it. Um, I, I literally cannot remember if I saw the second one. Anyway, that's another one. There's also the Cheaper by the Dozen movies, which... Blech. Didn't like those at all. And then the weirdest, at least to me, is Home Alone. Although I will tell you that a few weeks ago I was putting stuff up at work and I was actually putting up putting up a copy of Home Alone onto the shelf, a new copy because that one comes in pretty pretty often. And I set it down and then I noticed on its side 20th Century Fox and I was like, oh man, Disney owns this now. And so it's probably inevitable that this that a uh, that a reboot or something is going to happen, a remake. And now it's happened. So I guess if you want to, you can blame me. I mean, blame my brain for making it happen out of the ether. 
Um, but these things are happening, and I gotta say, I just I don't like it. Uh, this in kind of combination with the news that the Fox film division will be releasing a lot uh, fewer movies because of the returns on them. Um, yeah, I I am I am suddenly a lot less happy than I even was, which was pretty not happy with this whole Disney Fox and Disney plus thing that happened. It's just, yeah, I, I just, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. Um, and yeah. So what do you make of all of this streaming related news? Yeah, it's weird, man. Um, but to start off at the top with uh, the bleaker street and Hulu thing, I think that's fantastic. And I think you nailed it right on the head. Um, I, I, I'm going to say the four studios, um, or four distribution companies, and I'm very well aware that one of them just signed for bankruptcy. But Joel is correct. Bleecker Street and Neon were kind of on the same level. They were like, you know, the second tier independent giants. And then you had at the top, like an Annapurna and like A24. Those were mm-hmm. the ones leading the pack. Unfortunately, one of them is probably going to be died off here pretty soon. So Anna, Annapurna, yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, I thought about I thought about including that this week, but. Yeah, I, di- I didn't want to be a downer. <laughs> right, um, it's it, pretty it's pretty devastating news over there. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty bad. Um, but anyways, uh, Bleecker Street has always kind of pumped out, you know, pretty good films. Uh, they even have one playing right now with Brian Banks, and Joel and I saw that at the uh, mm-hmm. uh, film festival this year, and uh, I-, I loved it quite a bit. And I think it was just because we saw a lot of mediocre stuff at the festival, but um. Oh. Between like, it works. So, it's good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's good. It, it's a good uh, a good movie. And so when you have stuff like that, and you know, looking back at their history, going all the way back to one of their first big releases with like Pawn Sacrifice, they've just been kind of sprinkling in stuff with like Captain Fantastic, Eye in the Sky, uh, Denial, uh, Brian Banks, even one of Joel's favorite movies, The Lost City of Z. They just always kind of come out with um, nice little uh, surprises. And so, um. Them, them partnering up with uh, with uh, Hulu, uh, with Hulu is not really a, a shock to me. Um, just because every single studio or distribution company, like they they try to find a home where, like, if they have a movie that they have in theaters, and then they they go to Blu-ray and DVD, um, you know, uh, they want to have somewhere where they can kind of like put all of them, you know, with like. With, like, Hulu, they have, like, deals with, like, Paramount. They have um, deals with Blumhouse. So, you know, it, it makes sense to me that, uh, um, you know, that that would happen. And I'm glad they found a home. And it's really funny because now Bleecker Street will uh, be giving their movies to Disney now for uh, distribution on Hulu as an exclusive thing for them. Um, as far as the Disney Plus thing... Um, yeah, it's it's uh, really depressing. On one on one side of my brain, I am probably gonna get it, <laughs> the Disney Plus Hulu ESPN Plus bundle because um, it's cheaper, um, and we're already paying like eight dollars a month for Hulu. You might as well just combine it and get two other services. And I'm excited to see like what they do with like the Marvel shows and the Star Wars show has my curiosity and stuff. But on the other side of my brain. I realize that they are – it just seems like they're just killing a lot of stuff and just 
playing on nostalgia and just kind of rebooting older stuff that's in their catalog to um, try to win people over because they see the nostalgia train is kind of running strong now with like the Dumbos and the Lion Kings and the Aladdins. So I don't know. I I really don't like it. Um, You know, with Home Alone, that movie holds a very special place in my heart. Um, It's the first two or one, two of the most rewatched movies I ever watched as a kid. Uh, Diary of a, uh, of a Wimpy Kid. I think I stopped after seeing two or three. Um, the first one was really funny. Uh, I have a great memory of one of my college friends and I. We went to uh, Rave Motion Pictures. That's where I worked, which was a movie theater here in Fort Worth. Uh, now it's owned by Cinemark. Um, but yeah, uh, we we went there late at night and we saw the first Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I think we were the only two in the theater. And we were laughing our heads off. The whole entire time. I, I don't know why it was so funny. Maybe I was just delirious from like lack of sleep, so no oxygen to my brain. And uh, that's that's usually that's usually true. Yeah, so. yeah. Which is, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, Joel, Joel uh, has seen me uh, cry l- with laughter. I've seen him cry with laughter. It's uh, it's pretty fun <laughs> stuff. Um, but yeah, the, I remember the first Diary of a Wimpy Kid being a pretty fun little movie, and uh, we were just laughing hysterically. Uh, I think it was the. I remember it was the scene where they did the the dubbing, where I think it was like uh, his imagination. He was replaying the scene in his head, but it was like his mouth to like the adults. I I, I don't know, hilarious stuff. Uh, I'm sure if I rewatched it now, I'm pretty sure I would slap myself for laughing at such a thing. Um, and then uh, Ninth Museum, I, I've actually seen all three of them. They're fine family movies. Uh, if you want to redo them. I really don't have any skin in that game. I, I'm more concerned about the Home Alone thing and just more the overall thing. And the Planet of the Apes thing, just stop. Uh, like, War of the Planet of the Apes was fantastic. What a great conclusion. And, and Joel and I, we we salivated over that film th- for mm-hmm. half of a year because we had a whole episode on it, and we talked about it at the end of the year. So it's like that movie was on our, uh, you know, our minds and the podcast for like six months straight. Like, that's how much we loved it. Don't touch and in, it, and in and in both of our top fives, right. if I remember correct. Yeah, yeah, just don't touch it. Like I, yeah. I'm sorry, like just it, do other stuff. Like if you want to like do more alien films, I'm one of the few people in the back here that will wave to you and say, do that. Um, you know, continue to make Avatar movies, but don't touch the Apes movies. They're fine the way they are. But yeah, I I don't know, Joel. Every time when we talk about one of these stories, I I've never felt more conflicted about anything because. You and I were suckers. We're gonna get Disney Plus and all that, all this stuff, and yet we still hear about stories about this or them shutting down nearly all of Fox film development. It's mm-hmm. it's crazy, man. So I I don't know what I don't know what to think. I, I am I am definitely caught by the consumer aspect of it. I am definitely addicted, and I. I need to wean off of it for sure, but until then, I'm going to get the service, and I'm still going to complain about this stuff. So, I, that, that we're just that, we're just going to live in hypocrisy, That's right? It. Exactly. There hypocrisy is the name of the game. But <laughs> to be honest with you, like they just they they need to stop doing stuff like this with playing with the nostalgia card, and then of course gutting like all of what they acquired. Which it's like, well, what was the point then? Um, and so. I don't know, man. I'm just really confused about it, but um, it, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. I'm going to get the bundle when it comes out, but if they start jacking up prices and it just gets worse and worse, then I, I will swear off of it for good. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of where my, my mindset's at. 
well, good luck with the MCU then. Right, exactly. If I want to be any anywhere in tune to the TV shows, which is going to be in tune to the movies, I have to get it. And it's like I, yeah. I'm a sucker now. Like I, I have to do it. So there we go. All right. So a couple of other things. Um, one of them is really quick, and actually, it's extremely quick. And that is that Andy Serkis is directing Venom Two. Um, the reason that this is so quick is because he's directed two movies I have not seen. <laughs> so I, I don't really have any thoughts about this. I, I don't have any experience with his filmmaking i can't really say anything particularly solid about it uh i'm just gonna say good luck certainly he's a fun a fun actor i just i literally cannot speak to his uh, abilities as a director neither of his previous movies was particularly well liked on a critical level um so i don't know uh we'll see plus i just don't care about venom 2 at this point um and I'm assuming that you feel the same way, although I'll get to you in a second. The other thing is that David Ayer has a, uh, um, a project lined up, and that is a movie called El Alamein. Uh, this is actually based on a pair of bloody battles during World War II in North Africa uh, at a railway stop called El Alamein. Both of them were fought in 1942, so presumably the movie is going to follow both of those events. Um, I don't know much about them. I do know that there was one movie made about them back in the 60s um, in Italy, I believe. Um, and that, I think one of them starred Michael Rennie, who was a big star at that point. But other than that, I don't know much about this project. It is certainly interesting. I think that this is a good fit for Ayer. I think that his one of his best movies, I think, as a director was Fury. Uh, from a few years ago. So if he can bring that kind of gritty um, uh, kind of realism almost uh, to th that particular – that he brought to that particular kind of war setting to this one, um, he has a very kind of machismo-heavy style. But I think it was – I think it fit. If he can do that again then I'm really excited for what he's got in store for, for us this time. There's no actors involved yet. Um, and yeah, so, you know, hopefully he involves some of his usual people like John Bernthal, um, or, uh, I know that he's worked with Shia LaBeouf before. If LaBeouf is going through this kind of renaissance of his career now that he's admitted, uh, like in an interview that he's softened up and, and he's getting his life back on track. I hope he works with him again because I thought that uh, LaBeouf was terrific in um, in Fury. He had a, uh, a really affecting role in that. Yeah, I like this. I like this. Uh, I like this project a lot. So what are your thoughts on both of these? Yeah, um, I'm going to keep this short and brief for both uh, because <laughs> this is where my lack of film, no film knowledge for both of these stories comes in. I never saw Fury, so I have no idea what Oh, oh Ayer's, you haven't seen Fury. I haven't seen Fury, so I have uh -huh. no idea what Ayer's capability is in the war dramas, but I've heard great things, and uh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't see it. Um, but he needs a bounce back um, after yeah. <laughs> doing uh, Suicide Squad and Bright. I think if there's any any person out there that needs a, a, a good old bounce back in the industry, it's him. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's uh, – sure, it, sound, it sounds good. Um you know, I, I love me some good uh, war movies. We just talked about 1917 last week and my mm -hmm. excitement for that. So, hey, you keep making them, I, I will keep going. As far as the Andy Circus thing, I guess um, I guess uh, he let the devil in. Um, 
you know, knock, knock. Uh, <laughs> so, right, I, I tried to incorporate it as best I could. Uh, as as we all heard from uh, Eminem's uh, Oscar-worthy song, Knock, Knock, Let the Devil In. Uh, <laughs> God. Um, yeah, I'm with Joel in this one. I haven't seen Mowgli. I haven't seen Breathe. So I, I don't know. I don't know how Andy Serkis is. As a director, we know that he's a great actor, and we know that he commits 110% to that, but if we haven't seen any of his directing, I can't really comment on, th- on this. Yeah, exactly. Those, those might be, the, it's, it, those I might basically, be really great movies, and we have no clue. Yeah, so, um, exactly. But him directing Venom 2 is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen because <laughs> Tom Hardy let it leak, right? And I thought he was joking. And then Andy Serkis posted a picture of, of him reading a Venom comic, and I was like, what world are we living in where someone called his manager, agent, whatever, and was like, hey, uh, we start shooting in a couple months. Do you think Mr. Circus would be available uh, for this? and <laughs> To direct it. Yeah, to, to, to direct it. And they're just like, I don't, I don't know, man. You know, and they probably said no at first and then hung up the phone. And then uh, Andy was like, man, I'm not really getting any work. Uh, and then he was like, all right, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> it it's, a, it's a pretty interesting uh, – way he uh got the job because Ruben Fleischer was supposed to come back to direct the sequel but he's doing post-production work on Zombieland Double Tap right now and that movie comes out in October he probably won't complete the picture until like end of September early October Mm. and so they start shooting in November for Venom 2 he needs to set up time for pre-production so if he has no time for that then they have to have another director to step in so um, that's how Andy Serkis got it at the last minute is because uh, Fletcher is busy doing post work on and, Double and I And I'd be willing to bet you that Zombieland 2 for for Fleischer because it was kind of the name-making movie for him right. was instantly the bigger priority. Right. And so for him to come back to this, which, you know, it was just it, – it was a successful movie, but I can't imagine that it was in any way – a passion project. So for him to bring back this two of the stars that he kind of made at the same time, you know, with Jesse Eisenberg and, and Emma Stone for him to come back with those and, and get to work with Harrelson and Breslin again, that was definitely a bigger priority. And well, you know, what's wild it, about speaking the speaking personally, is, it's much same, more, much more important, <laughs> right? It's the same distribution company. So I'm wondering yeah. if Sony actually approached him and was like, Hey, I know you're working on Zombieland double tap right now. We got that coming out in October. Do you have enough time for uh, pre-pro on uh, Venom 2? And he was like, eh, probably not. So they probably already talked to him about it because it's the same company. So uh, it, it, may, it may also very well have been a situation where he was attached for a while. Right. I know that he was attached for a while. And it may have been that he, was, he, w- he would have been able to do it and probably would have done it if not for the fact that it just so happened – the production maybe took a little bit longer than anticipated. It may have been that Zombieland took a little bit longer to set up whenever it was being developed and all of that than he anticipated. So it's literally just a case of like weeks of overlap and he just and he just couldn't do it. So yeah. Right. Totally totally probably just like a, a timing thing. And, 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 and here's the thing, it's like if he had the time to come back to Venom 2, he would have taken it. I don't think he should be embarrassed that he did the first Venom. I didn't really care for it. I know yeah. Joel was lukewarm on it, but it still made a crap ton of money. Like yeah, that thing absolutely. is is well regarded in a business and, sense. So, and I even said, I think 
after that that I would be interested in sequels. I, I would do. Um, I told you. I said yeah. the best part about the movie was the post credit scene because that's the movie I wanted to see. Yes. So, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, and speaking of that, I think it's funny that Woody Harrelson is tied to both projects now. Uh, <laughs> Double Tap <laughs> and uh, Venom 2. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, totally uh, oops, spoilers. Um, anyways, uh, <laughs> yeah, the movie's the movie, been out for like year almost old. a year now. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, good uh, uh, news stories indeed. Speak, Joel, I can't wait to do this segue. Are, are you ready for it? Like, can you sit down and, like, prepare yourself? Because we just talk, okay. got them talking about Venom 2. Speaking of Knock Knock Let the Devil In, uh, Nicolas Cage has a new movie out uh, called <laughs> Running with the Devil. Um, yeah, it's a, thank you for the segue award of the year that goes to me. Um, so this one stars uh, Nicky Cage and Lawrence Fishburne, and this one is about the CEO of an international conglomerate that sends two of his most regarded executives to investigate why shipments of cocaine are being hijacked over cut somewhere on the supply chain. Now, listen, you're probably wondering, like, okay, out of the two trailers that dropped this week, you know, why did you pick this one? Because there were several others I could have picked. But we got to talk about Nick Cage movie when it comes up, right? I mean, because one drops every, like, two days, right? So, you know, Nick Cage has one of the, the best turnarounds for any actor in the business. Joel and I have to talk about it. And so, with this one... I was expecting like a pretty hilarious trailer. To be honest with you, it was fine. Now, it's not anything that's going to change his career around. It's still something they probably shot in like two and a half days. But I will give them credit where credit is due. It doesn't look half bad. The funniest part is actually Lawrence Fishburne. He actually is worse than Nicolas Cage. He's doing some weird accent. I don't know if that's to make him look intimidating, but it, it is hilarious. He's got two scenes of dialogue that made me roll on the floor laughing. Other than that, the trailer's fine. Um, it does look better than most of his other stuff. Uh, as Joel is a witness to, we had to watch one together, and it's like that is the, the quality that he's doing nowadays, and this one looks like a slight turnaround. But it looks entertaining enough, and uh, I would actually give this one uh, a watch just um, from the way it looks. And the last trailer, the last major one that dropped this week, super excited that this one is coming out during uh, award season. Uh, you know, Joel talked about the peanut butter falcon. Um, you know, he saw the movie. I saw the trailer. You know, he said he, he liked the movie. Um, I, I really love the trailer, and we are noticing that Shia LaBeouf is having kind of a comeback year because not only does he have that movie, but he has this one, which is about his life, and he wrote this. He plays his dad in the movie, and it's a movie or it's a trailer that kind of came out of nowhere and slapped me across the face in the best way possible. So this one's called Honey Boy, and um, uh, as I say, uh, as I stated, this is about Shia LaBeouf's uh, acting career when he was a child. Um, you know, his even Stevens days, even, you know, going back a few years before that and his father kind of pushing him to be, um, you know, the best actor out there and his act or his father, uh, was an alcoholic, I think had some mental health stuff, uh, as well. And so kind of had a, a pretty rocky, uh, upbringing and this trailer is amazing. 
Like, I cannot wait to see this. I mean, we have we have a little kid that's cast as Shia LaBeouf that, like, kind of looks just like him. Um, and then Lucas Hedges plays older Shia LaBeouf as Shia LaBeouf plays his father. Um, so there's some weird Inception stuff uh, going on right there. <laughs> Are you there. sure this wasn't written by, like, Charlie Kaufman? <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was not written by Shia LaBeouf. Um, but, yeah, it, it, looks, it looks phenomenal. It, it, I'm glad that... When you see movies like this with actors, you know, taking on own stories of their their lives and stuff, it can get a little, um, little self indulgent, if you will, and it just comes across uh, as poorly, you know, con- conceived, and it's just there's just something kind of icky about it. You're just like, oh, why would you make a movie about yourself? But I think in this case, I I like it just because it looks way more human and more emotionally connective uh, than something that's really vain and just kind of out there to stroke someone's ego. This looks like, hey, Shia LaBeouf had an interesting childhood growing up, had some really uh, rocky relationship issues with his father. I think it's a story that people can kind of grasp onto and really uh, – Find that emotional connection that would, you know, probably bring you down to tears uh, with relationships that you have with your parents or other people's parents and stuff. And so just making that human story and making it so raw and visceral like that, especially just from the trailer, is really attractive about it. I I, I can't wait to see it. He looks he, he looks I, I would say Oscar worthy. Like it's the type of performance that if he gives correctly as his father we could be looking at a supporting actor nom from him. And that would be pretty pretty great, considering that you have this one and the Peanut Butter Falcon in the same year. Um, still not on board with his antics, uh, because he still gets uh, arrested sometimes. Uh, but if we're talking you know, career-wise, he's making some right moves. Um, uh, you, know what, you know what this reminds me of? It's, it's weird what? that it reminds me of this movie because I haven't even seen it. But um, there was a movie back in 2004, and it made Roger Ebert's top ten that year. It's called Badass, and it had uh, Mario Van Peebles playing his father, Melvin Van Peebles, in a movie about Mario's kind of experience growing up on the set of a movie called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And it basically the younger Van Peebles kind of described it as a way for him to perform an exorcism kind of on his own experience with his father, which was constantly very disappointing. And they weren't, they weren't, you know, they weren't as close as maybe they, they could have been. And that's kind of what this reminds me of. He's basically working out stuff through his art and he's obviously going to be reflecting back on his even Stevens days, at least a little bit, at least a little bit. And I know that a lot of the story will also take place just after he kind of the transformers era, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm hearing really good things about the, the trailer. I haven't watched it or anything, but I can't wait to see the movie. It, it, it does sound, it does sound like an important piece of, uh, like I said, just sort of, uh, exorcism of art, um, or through art and yeah, kind of getting, getting stuff out of his system. Yeah. Almost. It's definitely therapeutic for him. Uh, yeah. you can definitely tell with the, the energy that is in the trailer. And, uh, I was just looking it up. The, uh, the child that plays his younger self is Noah Jupe, and he played the the son in A Quiet Place, 
last year. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, he um, was in Suburbicon, too, I think. Yeah. He played um, Matt Damon's son. So, yeah, good yeah. good little actor. Yeah, sure. I mean, he looks just like him, So I, yeah. uh, especially with his uh, kind of curly uh, mop top that he's got going on. So, yeah, it, it looks phenomenal. It comes from Amazon Studios. Maybe this is going to be their major push this year for possibly uh, screenplay and uh, acting. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully they can uh, do something with that. So, obviously, out of the two, Joel – you're going to knock, knock, let the devil in, right? So, uh, <laughs> hey, listen, this is the last time I'm going to say it, um, but uh, I, I can't promise anything. Knock, so, uh, knock, let the honey boy in. Let the, I, see, this, seriously, <laughs> th- th- this is the second film in the honey universe uh, that Shia LaBeouf has uh, uh, been a part of. So I can't wait to well, see the third one. I mean, in this one, one he, plays, he plays, or he is uh, played by American Honey Boys. So there you go. Greatness. All right. Um <laughs> All right, folks, that's it for the trailers. I'm definitely much more interested in Honey Boy, by the way, if uh, you were going to ask me that clearly, clearly much more interested in that. All right, let's shift into this week's review. So, of course, we are moving back a week just again, just just one more time, just because this was a big one. I knew that Chase would want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> I'll explain why why that laugh is why it is later on, but... I knew that he would want to talk about it, at least from afar. So this is Hobbs and Shaw. Um, it also tags on a little Fast and Furious Presents part on its uh, on its title because this is the 10th movie. No, the 10th? No, 9th movie. ninth movie in the Fast and Furious franchise, but instead of being a direct sequel, um, the 8th sequel to the Fast and the Furious from 2001, it's the first spinoff. And this one takes place uh, a little bit after The Fate of the Furious happened, the events of that movie, and it's a direct uh, spinoff from that and Furious 7 because we have um, two people teaming up here who were uh, kind of introduced late in the game for this series. So one, you have Luke Hobbs, who was once a diplomatic security service agent. He was hunting the heroes of the franchise until he joined them. And now he's kind of in the same in the same uh, in the same spot as them. And Deckard Shaw, who was an assassin, uh, he killed one of the heroes and then uh, and joined them. Uh, <laughs> okay, I just can't say that without laughing, folks. It's just so ridiculous. But anyway, these two are teaming up, as the title suggests. The villain here is Brixton Lore. He's an indestructible menace, played by Idris Elba. He's after a phenomenally deadly virus that can um, infect the entire world at a rate much faster than any other virus known to man. And he wants it because he wants to unleash it on the population for no rational purpose whatsoever. Unfortunately for Lore, it is in the bloodstream of Shaw's sister Hattie, played by Vanessa Kirby, and that is literally the entire plot of Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, these movies aren't really about the plot, of course. They're, all, they're always about the sequences of vehicular destruction but here's the problem with Hobbs and Shaw which I think actually suffers from a different one kind of than the series that spawned it there's really not much of the series kind of core um, gimmick uh, this time around it's very much about this espionage kind of um, you know lots of espionage enhanced shenanigans and Characters still break the laws of physics at a whim like they did in the cars of of all of the other movies, or at least all of the movies since Fast Five. 
And but here we have this kind of tired plot, just about a, a, a generic kind of a generic villain who wants to destroy the world. Um, it also really hinges on the pairing of these two characters that makes absolutely no sense and kind of makes less sense when you when you come to realize that the movie only allows them to bicker. That's that's all they do here. There's there's a lot of riffing between Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham, who play the roles in question in in that order. And there's a lot of soppy stuff about family. It somehow manages to fit that in by the end. This series has always been about family, so of course, here's here's the here's the at the what's at the core of this movie's problem, and for me at least has been at the core of most of the movie's problems. Um, Okay, it's kind of a given that the movies in this series are going to be big, dumb, and loud. They always have been. They always will be as, as this series goes on. Um, but it, it kind of comes across as amazing, especially in this movie, to consider that once upon a time, this was a series that started with a movie that was um, basically just about a band of drag racing dvd player thieves that's all it was they were just stealing black market dvd players and they did that by way of drag racing and thievery and all of that then they became kind of anti-heroes then they got involved in a bunch of like law enforcement and special agent type stuff it didn't make any sense whenever it made that shift and now we have this movie that is big loud dumb and unfortunately um on, on top of those three things, which are not bad things in general, uh, it's also repetitive and tedious. Um, now, this is probably not surprising to hear <laughs> for our listeners who know my thoughts on this franchise. I've only liked one movie, and that movie was Furious 7, uh, because I think that there was a sense of kind of um, the, basically it was the only movie that worked I think because it understood how big dumb and loud it was it didn't try to do anything else it also had a little bit of kind of a kick to the stomach with the untimely death of Paul Walker it was one of his last appearances in a movie and certainly his last appearance in this in this series um, helped along by his brothers because uh, they had only just started shooting the movie when that happened. And um, so that one worked because I think it it knew what it was doing. But I, I think that otherwise the series hasn't really known how to bridge the gap between the big dumb loudness and this sincere kind of um, consideration of the family stuff. And I think that it is also a little too straight-faced in its characters and their acting, which was always at least a little bit underperformed, I think, um, by a lot of the actors. That was a major problem, and I think it kind of bottomed out with um, with Fate of the Furious. That was one of the, at least for me, one of the worst movies in the franchise. Here, I think that Hobbs and Shaw is a, is slightly better. I think it's slightly better than than Fate of the Furious. It's also definitely better. Than Tokyo Drift and Too Fast, Too Furious, um, which I thought were just pitiful. 
but I don't think that it gets up to the sort of the mediocrity of some of the other movies. Definitely not the heights of the seventh in the series, Furious Seven. Um, it's a little bit. It's a little bit better. It's at least. It's at least tolerable. But I think it just. It still suffers from that problem of. It's far far too sincere this series is inherently goofy i think that it needs to embrace that more i kind of wish that what this movie doesn't do is spend so much time on this plot that means absolutely nothing uh because it really just leans into the all of these monotonous mechanics of how the villain works and um what you know the the location of this deadly virus and uh all this stuff between uh, Dwayne Johnson and his family that comes that comes up near the end of the movie, and then you have the action scenes, which I don't think are all that interesting or exciting. Uh, I think that it's actually kind of summed up by the final one, which is this big battle between uh, the Johnson character's family and uh, the Elba character's uh, army of faceless drones, essentially. Um, where they're fighting on this big this idyllic cliff in Samoa and it it's basically in the early hours of the morning just as dawn breaks on the on the cliffside and just as dawn breaks isn't a great place to have your uh, action scene because for whatever reason director David Leach decides that he doesn't want to change anything about the scenery and it just ends up being muddy gray looking and, and, and indistinctive, just really not reflective of a, of a, of a cliffside at all. And I think that um, Furious 7 in particular, which I thought had some, some interesting shots um, here and there, some, some good cinematography, proved that this series can have good cinematography. This is not an example of that. I think it's pedestrian. Uh, I think it's way too long. This thing is 135 minutes and it needed to be at least like what, maybe eighty-five or ninety, something like that. They could easily shave off a bunch of the repetitive mechanics of this plot that they that they um, that they focus in on way too much. And then you get into like you know the performances. Johnson and Statham are really overperforming everything here. There's a couple of cameos from big li- from A-list actors that come in. They only call attention to themselves. I won't I won't tell people who they are, but. They aren't funny or interesting or really all that surprising. Um, you know, I think that the only people that really kind of escape from this, you know, Vanessa Kirby's fun. Uh, there's a friend of mine who put it this way. Uh, she's basically not a friend of mine. It might have been I just saw it on Twitter. Basically, she's kind of having this sort of um, Atomic Blonde of her own almost because Leach directed Atomic Blonde. She's having that sort of plot on the side, and I think that it's not interesting. It's as interesting as everything else. But I think that she kind of makes it makes it at least in, like intense enough with her expressions that I think that it can be counted as a as a decent performance. And I think that Idris Elba is doing his fun sort of mustache twirling routine, but he's just not playing an interesting villain whatsoever. Um, and not to mention his. Uh, the characters come up and this is completely anticlimactic. Anyway, there's just a lot of problems that plague this movie, and I think that it suffers from a lot of the problems of the other series, but I think it finds its its own. And for that, it's just really long, really tedious. I can barely remember it a week after it came out. 
and I'm giving it a D plus. So kind of just bluntly stating that there at the, at the end of the review, but that is my, re- that is my rating for Hobbs and Shaw is a D plus. Uh, I'm just, I'm sticking to that. So Chase, uh, you're a fan of the series. What did you think of Hobbs and Shaw? That is a true statement. Uh, embarrass, embarrassingly so, but I, I enjoy, I just enjoy watching them. I, I, I didn't know what it was that I liked about it, um, but when I when I talk about Hobbs and Shaw, I think I know why I like the others more. So my history uh, with this franchise has been weird because I remember when Tokyo Drift came out and it it just flopped. Like no one liked it, no one really saw it. It didn't really make that much money, and then they came back with Fast and Furious, and then did Fast Five. N six seven eight. It's just been kind of wild to see the progress and the growth in this franchise. Not only in its ridiculousness, but its uh, monetary value too. Um, it's one of the the weirdest uh, anomalies in Hollywood um, that I've ever seen. It, it's it's just strange, especially what Joel said. It started out as like street racing with a bunch of people stealing stuff, and now look where it's at. Vin Diesel's hopping from building to building. Um, in skyscrapers, <laughs> scrapers with a car. It's, it's insane. But I saw the trailers to Hobbs and Shaw, and I was excited because I'm like, hey, if you want to try some spinoffs in this universe, I will be the first one to tell you that is okay. I like the franchise. Give it to me. What do you got? I got to tell you right now that I agree with everything that Joel said, it, I, even down to the grade. Um, it's just it's just not good. I, I just I did not like watching it. Um, I had four drinks beforehand. Still did not help. Um, so take that for what you will. Um, which is funny because uh, when Joel and I saw Hellboy, I also had some drinks and it did not help as well. So if your movie cannot overcome having fun at the movie theater and having a couple beers while you drink it, then then you you have uh, you have lost me because it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be entertaining. Uh, uh, having a couple cold ones and it just um, did not work on that front. To start with David Leach, I it's, res- it's because it's so assaultive, right? It's like, it's just constant motion, motion, motion. It never with no has any time it. to yeah. breathe ever, right. and and it's I, 130 minutes of that. Which oh my god, kind of, it's, yeah, it, exactly. it's really just repetitive and just kind of in your face and like you're probably thinking you're probably rolling your eyes right now i can't see you guys but you're rolling your eyes because you're like well if you like the stupidity of the first eight of them why does this one not work i I think a a a few things david leach um big problem um with this film you know there is no vision to this there is no style this is a guy that has been in the stunt industry in hollywood for years he and uh stahelski you know they brought together the first john wick and of course he hasn't been a part of it director wise uh since the first one he's an uncredited director but he was a part of the choreography he was a part of the style he knows how to make these movies atomic blondes the same way i thought the movie was fine but his action sequences were really well done and that's what joel was alluding to is that this franchise like, this is what they rely on. This is their crutch. And if you can't make these action sequences worth it, then what's the point? The direction is pedestrian. It is very just kind of flat. There's no there's no energy behind it. I don't know why they hired him. 
Like even even Deadpool two, which is a film that Leach also directed, its action sequences were pretty well done. They were inventive. They were different from the first one. They had some energy to it. They had a creative vision to it to where I could sit there and go, hey, I appreciate the effort. But this one was just kind of like, uh, well, first of all, the hand-to-hand combat was rough to watch. You know, let's cut uh, every every second uh, of the scene and just cause um, dizziness on the audience member. David Leach, that is not your style. If you watched John Wick or even Deadpool 2, Atomic Blonde, there's a lot of long takes, a lot of stabilization on shots to where you can see what the heck is going on. Uh, so there's that. The um, big ending action sequences for all three acts, just, you know, big old CGI messes that just weren't even entertaining. And uh, the two-hour and ten-plus-minute runtime is a huge problem with that as well. You should have cut this down to a 90-minute film. Um, when you're focusing on side characters as your your main uh, source for the movie, it just it doesn't work. And I think that was the moment, Joel, where I said, this is why I like the other ones and I don't like this one. Because it it was it focused on those two characters. I you're right. Statham and Johnson didn't even come until the fifth and sixth one. The reason why I liked watching these movies is because I liked Vin Diesel. I liked Paul Walker, um, Michelle Rodriguez, uh just ev- everyone that interacts in these movies. That's why I like to go see him, and then the, the action scenes are just bonuses. Um, and I think it's because, you know, Vin Diesel and everyone else involved, like, they are fully committed to the ridiculousness, and they, they make it work. They're charismatic. They have personality behind them. This movie is just nothing but an insult fest for two hours and ten minutes, uh, as if a five-year-old wrote this script and was just like, hey, wouldn't it be great if they just called each other buttheads for two hours? No. It wouldn't. It would get boring after five minutes, but they did that through the entire runtime. Um, so you don't care about anything that they do. You don't. Then you don't care about the action scenes. the The villain in this movie is a joke. I mean, he even calls himself Black Superman at one point, where he's just like, "Yeah, I'm going to be indestructible." Then wh- what's the point of fighting you? Then just let him take over and just ruin the world because I, I I don't want to see the world saved. Just let him complete his thing. Um, it. Yeah, it just uh, Idris Elba was a complete waste in this movie. It's like I, I like that man quite a bit, but no, thank you. Like even he, in some of his hammiest scenes, couldn't even make it entertaining. And I'll and I'll tell you too. So the gimmick about the character is that he's basically indestructible, and I think by the like the forty eighth time that he wasn't destroyed, I was like, okay, I get it. Yeah, and they don't because go they, any, they, they just don't go they just beyond keep... that. That's, yeah, they, that's the most yeah, painful they, thing about it. It's like it's just bare bones storytelling. That's just like we're literally having a a thin story to set up these three action sequences. Which, by the way, it's the same thing for each act in this movie. Act one, mm-hmm. they're going after uh, Idris Elba. He's got the virus. Uh, it, it leads off into a citywide chase. Oh, they got away. All right, let's regroup. In the second act, same thing, going after him once again. They escape. Let's go to Hawaii this time. It's the same thing over and over again. You're like, hey, there's no way people are going to notice. They're just wanting the action scenes. But it's like even down to using the same shots where like when they went back to Idris Elba and he had all the the wires and stuff in him, it was the same like two or three shots uh, 
with him getting injected with more stuff. And I'm like, that just shows you that people were repetitive and lazy with this movie. And it's like, I realize that this is your cash cow universal. Can you put some effort into it? That's all I ask. Um, and, and you're like, put effort into these films. That's rich. Um, but I think the reason why the other ones work is because you have those relationships that kind of work well with each other and everyone kind of bouncing off of each other. And this one, you have two people that are insulting each other in a repetitive movie with no vision and just lazy action sequences. So I don't know what to tell you. It's just I didn't like it. It was a it was a bad movie theater experience, and it gave me a headache watching it. And uh, one last thing to wrap it up, uh, Joel was absolutely correct about the cameos. It's they went on way too long, and I like both of those people, but their improv and just their their scenes that they carried out in specifically. They drew them out uh, to show you, like, hey, this actor's in this. It's like, yeah, we get it. Can we move on? And it, it was really more of an annoyance than um, a a playful addition, if you will. So, yeah, D-plus for me. Uh, Hobbs and Shaw is uh, kind of a turd of a film. And, I, uh, uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just not, uh, not good. So, uh, yeah, D-plus for me. Um, very... It's very whatever. Um, I, I'm still looking forward to Fast 9, Fast 10. I'll be there opening weekend. I'm sure Joel just, like, facepalmed himself. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, looking forward to the continuation of when Fast and Furious goes to Mars. Um, but uh, until then, I don't want them to do any more spinoffs. I think this was um, – if this is how you're going to start them, I want you to kill those projects immediately. So, uh, no, thank you. All right, folks. Uh, so the so the point is that it's the best movie of the year. All right. So speaking of the best movie of the year, actually, that's not really a good uh, transition. But we are that going your, to be Joel. That's what yeah. you went with with your transition. <laughs> good Lord, I don't child. Know. Um, <laughs> I tried. Sometimes it doesn't work. Um. All right, folks. We are returning to our uh, kind of very occasional in this case. Uh, trend of looking back at the years of the decade and talking about our favorite movies from those years. Now, we haven't done this in a while, and I think it's been since May, actually. The Godzilla episode might have been the last one, or maybe Dark Phoenix. But um, basically, the reason that we're doing this now is because, uh, and and not earlier than now, it's because we kind of jumped all over the um, the uh, the, the summer. So I was like, I couldn't really quite fit it in. I think that I was going to, when we re when we reviewed the lion King, but then I forgot and decided to delay it to today, especially because it's such a light episode. And, uh, yeah, so this is our final stop actually, uh, on that journey. Now for those not aware of what's going on, basically, um, for much of the early part of the year, we were talking about our favorite movies from 2016 onward that was the year before I joined uh, officially on the show, which was in 2017. So we've been kind of going back and talking about our favorite movies of those previous years. Chase, for a while, was just kind of repeating what he had already said on episodes of the show um, for those first, I guess, four years or so of, of the revisiting process because he has had this show running since 2013. But since 2012, we've been giving y'all some new content, um, some all-new content, because y'all did not know his favorites of 
2012 and 2011 before we started this, and y'all still don't know his favorites of 2010. So it's going to be fun. Um, it was a pretty good year, pretty good year. Uh, not not a um, a completely banner year, but there are there are some really good movies in this particular year that I that I wanted to highlight, and so. We're going to be doing what we always did. We're going to quickly run through um, our choices for 10 through 6 and then go a little bit more in depth with our 5 through 1s because we want to highlight the the 5 that we like the most. So before I get to my number 10 and and then run through the, the, pre, the, uh, the following 4, I will just say that there are 3 movies, and I think that Chase will agree with me on this, Three movies that could be called kind of a traditionally boring choice for the best film of 2010. It's kind of a year where people tend to gravitate toward these three movies as being among their favorites. And I will just say for now, all three of them are on my list. And I'm pretty sure all three of them are on Chase's list. (laughs) So we're actually starting with one of those at my number 10 spot and that is inception Joel before before you start your list I just okay this is gonna be really hard for me to say um I think people should be aware that when you get to your number one spot and you reveal it to be furry vengeance I want people <laughs> I want people to know that this was a very special film for you, and you're going to really go into depth uh, about it, and uh, I just want people to be prepared for it. Oh, it's it's number two. My number one number is two. Yogi Bear. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I was just making sure you, you had both camp movies on there with uh, talking animals. Both camp. There we go. Yeah. All right. No, but uh, but yeah, my number 10, Inception, uh, Christopher Nolan's film, which is big, brash, very unsubtle, but extremely ambitious. And I think that that uh, counts for a lot here. It's it's also an interesting movie about grief and memories and mourning and and fatherhood. I think it's uh, I think it's a real mind bender too, visually and and conceptually. I like it a lot. Um, and it's my number ten. Number nine um, is actually probably my choice for the most overlooked and forgotten film of the entire decade. That's if we were to have a list of that uh, of those choices, this would be at the top. And it's creation. Um, this one, not a lot of people are familiar with because it completely bombed even for an independent movie at the box office. I think it only made, I think like $900,000, something like that. But it comes from director John Amiel, stars Paul Bettany and Jennifer Connelly, a real life married couple playing, uh, Charles Darwin and his wife. And it follows Darwin as he mourns the death of his daughter, uh, falls out of favor with the church, uh, as he slips uh, kind of slowly toward feeling like there is no God and uh, basically uh, the process of writing on the origin of species. It is pretty devastating stuff. And I just recently watched it too, um, just to make sure I'd seen it, I think on DVD back in like 2011 or something, watched it on my computer and revisited it recently just because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't crazy. It, it isn't in good critical favor. I think it's in like the high forties on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's extremely overlooked and uh, fantastic. Really great performance, particularly from Bettany. Definitely seek this one out. Um, and that's my number nine. My number eight is Black Swan from director Darren Aronofsky, which is just a crazy, mad uh, burst of anger and creativity from a director that um, 
kind of did for this what he did for wrestlers in the wrestler although this is definitely much more of a psychodrama than the wrestler was and it's uh and it's dominated by that year's best performance i would say probably from uh natalie portman number seven uh is one of three documentaries on this list and this is the first one that i'm getting to but it's also one of two documentaries on my list that themselves those two were part of another threesome of movies in 2010 that people were wondering man are these documentaries or not and i've got my first one here at number seven and then there was one that i've got higher up on the list and then the third one was i'm still here with um joaquin phoenix the i think directed by ben stiller um uh that no, one was casey, uh, affleck. casey affleck yeah casey, casey affleck i know ben stiller was in it anyway um i i confused that apologies folks i didn't see that one actually I've, I've heard good things but i have seen the other two and the first one that i'm getting to at number seven is catfish uh this one is kind of the it's kind of a, a a morality tale for the internet age it's basically a crazy story that apparently is true and that is that these this uh, couple of guys are uh dance photographers and one of them gets into a, a communication with this younger girl who paints one of the pictures that he took like recreates it as a painting sends it to him and then they strike up a friendship but more importantly he also strikes up a romantic relationship online with her older sister and it turns into this insane story that's really stranger than fiction i'm literally not going to tell you what it is but let's just say that uh it's not what it seems and of course the term catfish has become kind of a cultural thing if you know what that means then you kind of probably know where this is going but it's a really fascinating story of um, kind of unexpected truths and tragedies. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a thriller. It kind of moves with the same sense of um, an eye for like surprise in a documentary format as Three Identical Strangers did last year. So Chase, if you haven't seen this one and you loved Identical Strangers, I know, you'd love this movie. I don't know if you did, but... I, I, I paid for it, and I saw it in theaters. Oh, you did? Okay, I see, did. I wasn't able to find it. Uh, I guess I just looked in the wrong places, but I, I blind bought the Blu-ray um, yeah, months later, and yeah, loved it. Uh, great movie. All right, my number six. Um, I've voiced my love for this movie. It was actually in my top five until just within the last few months, but um, it's Winter's Bone. Uh, from director Deborah Granick, which I think is just some of the most refined down-home kind of back out, uh, backwoods storytelling of the decade. It still contains Jennifer Lawrence's best performance. She stars as a girl named Ree Dolly, who is trying to look for her father because if she doesn't find him, then she will be kicked out of uh, her house. And meanwhile, it's likely that he's basically just gone um, because of some well backwoods deals involving drugs and it's a, and it's a big mystery fantastic filmmaking from deborah granick who also brought us leave no trace last year love this movie um and i watched it again this is another one i watched again re pretty recently last year sometime and and that reaffirmed my love for it so those are my tops or my uh my 10 through 6 chase what are your 10 through 6 yeah uh i, I really like your list uh quite a bit it's definitely um a great start to 2010 because when I was looking over movies that I've seen throughout the year, 
I, I thought to myself, like, at first, I was like, oh, there was only, like, one or two films I remember seeing. And then when I looked at the list of films that were released in 2010, I was kind of shocked on how many great movies were uh, um, flooded throughout that year. And um, some of them I saw in theaters, like, with, like, very few people. Some of them were uh, smaller films, and uh, I have a couple of them on my list. And some of them are, you know, kind of big blockbuster fairs. So I have... I have a really healthy mix, and it took me a while to kind of like order them correctly. But I think I'm I'm comfortable with this uh, top ten that I'm about to give to you guys. So just really quickly, ten through six. Um, to go off of Joel's point, well, actually, second thing is uh, I, I had it on my mind as Joel was talking about it. Guys, I don't know if you lo- know this, but I love trash TV. Um, the Catfish TV show is one of my favorite trash shows to watch. Um, it's just. It's just crazy. Um, but, yeah, the movie spawned that because it's the same people. Um, just wanted to say that uh, out there into the internet. So uh, my number 10, um, of course, Joel's not going to disagree with me in any way, shape, or form because this franchise is Teflon to him. Uh, my number 10 is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Definitely this one and Part 2, two of my favorite theater-going experiences. The theater that I worked at, worked at at the time they had um an opening for like a a new imax like theater and this was the first movie to play that at midnight yes they had midnight showings back in the day still um and i waited in line for six hours to get a seat because this was before reserved seating too so um definitely low low energy i waited i literally got at the theater at 10 a.m that day Uh (laughs) that's crazy uh yeah i did i did i I, um, I think, yeah, so this was the period, let's see, it was late 2010, I was at Walmart, wait, was that, was I at Walmart, where was I at this time, no, I wasn't working at this time, I think, uh, I think I, I was between jobs at this point, so I didn't have to take off any, any, any sort of days, but, I, yeah, I was, I I got... was in college at this point, so I, okay. I, to me, I had, like, you know, days off and stuff, and so, um, yeah, we left like I think after one of oh, our classes. Oh, that's right. I was I was in college. I I was in college, so basically I was back home already, and I think I was uh, training for the uh, the Air Force at this time. And in fact, I was supposed to leave that week, uh, the the day before the movie came out, <laughs> um, which would have been horrible. But it, it ended up being pushed back, and because of that, I didn't have. I think I had school on Friday, but I didn't have anything on Thursday, so I felt pretty uh pretty good about getting there at opening and i literally started the line um i was the first person in the line so I, I yeah think we were too it was either like us or like maybe two people in front of us but we were at the head as well because i was like i'm not gonna risk it uh i know right. this is a a a movie that people are gonna be sought after on, at midnight so but you know what the cool thing is about deathly Hallows part one and two I am a dumb dumb, and I didn't read any of the books. So all the surprises <laughs> that were revealed with, you know, like Snape or you know anything um, to do with Voldemort or whatever, I had no idea. So everything was re- a, a revealed to me, and the way this one kind of cut off uh, was a perfect stopping point, um, kind of like an end tag, a little post credit scene cliffhanger. The way it was uh, kind of delivered with uh, um, um, him getting the wand. Dumbledore and it I just remember people erupting in the theater such a rousing experience and I always said that once David Yates took over 
the franchise with Order of the Phoenix onward. Um, he's done a really great job kind of maturing the films and really bringing that dramatic heft that you mm-hmm. want with these books as they get older and stuff. And so just applying that to the movies and seeing them progress um, uh, in tone and um, just uh, on, on an epic scale, I was just so floored by it. I, I love part one and um, you know part two is uh, just as good. I, I, I love both of them back to back. So I had to give a nod to it at number 10. Uh, my number nine, my first introduction to Mark Millar. Uh, Kick-Ass. Uh, I really like this movie mm. quite a bit. Uh, I still like the sequel. I'm one of the few people that do, and I wish there was a Kick-Ass 3 being made, um, but that is never going to happen. I actually have um, a comic of Kick-Ass 3, uh, the actual like written comic that I found at a antique store. It was either at a pawn shop or I forgot, but I read it, and I was like, this is interesting um, as these kids get older and stuff, but it's never going to happen. Um, it did not do that well, and I don't see Universal ever going back to that well ever again. However, considering the popularity of the boys on Amazon Prime, I would not be shocked if they did a third one if they want to recapture that, but it, it's going to be different people. But, um, yeah, it's been dead for quite some time, but I still love the first one. Y- you have um, uh, uh, Joel, my uh, name, name is escaping me. Um, uh, Mark Strong as the villain, he's really great. Um, as we we've seen you know earlier this year with like Shazam, and of course Aaron Taylor Johnson as uh, Kickass and uh, Christopher Mintz Plaza uh, from Superbad. You know being uh, in this film and uh, seeing his turn <laughs> in the sequel, it's just fun. I-, I love kind of this pulpy, pulpy, violent kind of graphic novel esque films. This is definitely. Um, it's a gruesome film. Uh, it's definitely not a superhero film that you want your kids to see, uh, considering the title's name, which is funny, by the way, because I worked at the theater when it came out, and obviously they're not going to put Kick-Ass on the, the marquee. They put Kick-A. So th- it was like literally Kick-A with nothing else after that. So uh, I always said, uh, Theater 4, uh, Kick-A uh, is uh, releasing. We need to go clean it. Um, and that was my, my comedy that I practiced back in the day. But, uh, yeah, it's a really fun time at the theater, and that was, I think, one of my first introductions to Chloe Grace Moretz and uh, just seeing her kind of grow as an actress and getting better and better. Uh, knowing where she started is is kind of fun. Number eight, uh, a really fun film to watch. I think I watched uh, late at night. It was a small little crowd that watched it, but I, I usually fell asleep late, uh, you know, watching movies late uh, at night like that. Um, and that's, that's not a joke. Uh, Joel has seen me fall asleep sometimes. It's just, sometimes it happens. Um, but this was one of those cases to where I was so entertained and so in tune to this movie that I was like, yeah, I can't wait to see more from him, but you know, uh, I I want him to go back to these types of movies and hopefully he can soon. And that would be the town, uh, from Ben Affleck, you know, it's his uh, sophomore debut uh, right after gone baby gone and it's just a fun heist film it's uh well directed it's well edited uh the acting is top notch it was one one of my first uh, kind of introductions to jeremy renner i believe because this came out a year before the first thor um and of course ben affleck is great he's got the boston accent doing his thing it's just a really fun heist movie so if you're if you're a fan of the heists uh and having your heart palpitate throughout the entire thing just watching them um, 
come up with the the plans and executing these heists, I think this movie's for you, especially the way it starts. Um, it's very unconventional how it starts and how uh, a specific character kind of plays throughout the entire movie, knowing specific secrets and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's it's a really great setup and a really great uh, heist movie that I would recommend to anyone. That is my number eight. My number seven um, is my one of two one location movies and this one is 127 hours mr franco uh doing his thing uh directed by danny boyle and you know this is uh, based on the real life story of the the biker that gets uh his arm caught in between two rocks uh kind of out in the middle of nowhere uh in a desert and obviously he can't reach anyone because first of all he's like so far into the ground uh so even if uh he was nearby places it still would be hard to hear him um he is pretty much silenced and so running out of water running out of supplies and he's starting to become delirious and you know it's a story about survival and of course if you don't know the real life story i'm not going to spoil um if he survives or not but i will say if you were doing a one-man show like this and you were solely concentrating on franco and his performance it's got to be good, and it's phenomenal. There's a reason why he was nominated for it. And uh, it, it's just, a, like I said, a really great story about survival, and he, he is the main draw of the movie. And uh, Danny Boyle, uh, I think, hit it, out of park, hit it out of the park with that one. I really enjoy it. Um, but it's not my only one, uh, especially a survival movie in one location, because that is the next film at number six. I saw this movie with my, my friend at college, and it was like us two and like someone else in the theater. Now, when you see movies like this, if you don't grab my attention, it's going to be really hard for me to pay attention to it, especially if you are in one location throughout the entire uh, entirety of your film. 127 Hours had the, the, um, the pleasure of doing... Uh, flashbacks, different camera angles of the desert. Like, you know, there was a lot of stuff to kind of play with to kind of enhance the atmosphere of that film a little bit. My number six had a total of maybe eight shots going, the same eight shots going for an hour and a half. And a coffin for 90 minutes was Mr. Ryan Reynolds as he was buried uh, in the film Buried. Uh, Buried is a really great um, survival film as well. Uh, it's literally in the coffin, and there's no flashbacks. There's none of that. Maybe towards the very end, you could say that that's kind of the um, extra addition with like the voices and stuff, but they don't show anything. It's, it's literally him in that dark little box with a, with a lighter and some other supplies in the coffin. That's it. And it is something to behold i i don't think i've ever seen a one location movie like that before just because it was so simplistic um but it was so riveting at the same time i wanted to know this guy's backstory i wanted to know if he was going to escape i wanted to know um just every every little like plot detail moving forward like the mystery involved with that i was so into it and um uh, I just I loved it. I watched it in theaters. I, I I'm so glad I did because it is a great theater experience for sure. Um, yeah. So uh, that that is my number six. So uh, pretty great start so far, Joel. But uh, I think you're right. I think we're gonna have some 
maybe some overlap here in the the top five uh, for sure. So uh, let's go ahead and start with you, man. What is uh, what's your number five? Well, I I also just wanted to say to kind of give it away. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One is not on my top ten. It is it is a movie I like a lot, and I'm really heartened to see that it's on your list. Um, I think it's a little shapeless in terms of, and maybe that's inherent in its, uh, you know, its status as a part one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I have not seen buried. I need to see buried. Um, that was one that I missed out on. I think that I was, when it came out, I was visiting Indiana and it just kind of got away from me. But, um, all right. So moving on to my number five, I'm, uh, coming up with my next documentary, and that is one that I just saw earlier this year, actually, and it made a big impact. Uh, it's fantastic, and it should be sought out by anybody who wants to understand this this uh, this horrible horrible thing that happened over the course of a couple of years in the late 2000s. And that is Inside Job, and this one comes from director Charles Ferguson. Uh, Ferguson, by the way, made another documentary, another great documentary called No End in Sight, uh, back in 2007. And definitely one of the best movies of that year. That one was about the Iraq War. In this one, he tackles the economic crisis of 2008. Um, it really stretched from late 2007 through to 2009. But he focuses on kind of the middle part of this and what started it all. It's narrated by Matt Damon. It's got a comprehensive understanding of all of the economic facts and figures it has a bunch of interviews and kind of blows this whole thing wide open um, and directly names names, and it's just – it's fantastic. I know that you and I um, have been clear. You know, We love documentaries, and I think that the best kinds of documentaries are the ones that illuminate information but also do it in an interesting and cinematic way, and here – I think that it uses really clever editing tricks. Um, Damon's voice work here is almost kind of um, it, it sort of shifts between bemusement and and kind of amusement. There's almost a sly, uh, almost deadpan nature to his to his delivery of some of the uh, of some of the narration, which definitely sets it apart from the usual documentary narration. It's not the dry just reading off a page kind of thing. He he injects his own personality into the into the narration in a way that I thought was clever. And really again, it's just this comprehensive understanding of what went wrong, who was responsible, and it tries at least a little bit to figure out how we can get out of it. Um, of course this was made in 2010, so this is several years on now. Um, we really haven't done <laughs> any of those things to to get out of it, but we kind—I mean, we—we we kind of survived. We didn't enter into another um, uh, Great Depression, at least, although it was fairly close. It was much closer than people realize. And yeah, it's just—it's also a really good, uh, you know, kind of a um, a, uh, a make a good double feature with the Big Short, which is sort of the uh, narrative kind of uh, equivalent to this movie, and. Um, yeah, it's just – it's a fantastic documentary. It's a really it, – I could watch it again right now. It's 109 minutes. It's not very long. It's extremely entertaining even though it's about this kind of serious thing that happened. And uh, yeah, definitely need to see it. Have you seen this one? 
No, as you were talking about, I was like, have I seen that? And I think that was one of those ones that uh, I, I have not seen yet. Okay. Well, definitely, definitely uh, check it out. I own it. You could probably, we could probably watch it together at some point. And uh, yeah, so that's my number five. Uh, what is your number five? <laughs> I, li- I like how you're just like, all right, my number five is something kind of serious. It's a documentary. You know, it's, it's just really serious, guys. It's really terrifying. And then uh, my number five, uh, the very, very whimsical until the very last scene, uh, uh, for obvious reasons. But um, Toy Story three um, is is my number my number five is should it have been higher i don't know uh i thought it was uh but when i was looking down on the list of films that came out this year i was like no these films that uh i'm gonna mention on top of it they're better and uh, i I wanted to bring more light to them for sure uh because they they affected me more but uh, this one also affected me in ways i cannot even describe i was 20 years old when this one came out i was five when the first one came out these movies grew up with Joel and myself. We were the ripe age where the first one came out and it appealed to our age demographic. And, you know, with the, the second one coming out uh, four years later, you know, nine and ten, you know, we were still kind of in that, that same demographic. But the third one took so long to come out that we were in our 20s by the time that happened. And the fact that you can still feel something after all those years and it still be a good movie and it's not manipulative. It's like, it's just progression and storytelling while also still making it an entertaining kids movie. It's like, it's kind of astonishing on, uh, uh, how Pixar was able to get away with such a dark and mature G rated film. I'm still baffled to this day why it was rated G. Um, but it's one of the few times I've ever cried in a theater that incinerator scene still gets me. Um, it's one of the darkest things I think Pixar has ever done, uh, next to the whole movie of Coco. Um, (laughs) I think all of Coco is dark. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's just, it, it, even though it's a movie that takes forever to come out after the second one, it still feels like they didn't skip a beat. It feels like it, the second one came out the year prior and that has to do with the voice casting in this uh, franchise. Tom Hanks, you know, Tim Allen, uh, Wallace Shawn, uh, and even some of the newer additions that they added in three. It's just like um, it, everyone works so well with each other. They have so much fun in the recording studio. You can definitely tell. Um, they put so much passion into it. Like they become these characters and you don't see them as animated objects. You just see them um through their voices now and like that that's that's a real um achievement in animation and speaking of that it is gorgeous uh, i think the fourth one is even better uh in terms of its animation so they just keep getting better and better and they keep getting better programs to render out these uh animations and it's just uh um it's just eye-boggling how good it is it's just a great addition, and it's the next step uh, of that franchise at the time before we got the fourth one, and like I said, they just keep getting more mature, and they keep playing. It, I think it's actually funny, because we talk about all the time on the show that, you know, nostalgia, it, it can be a bad thing if, it, if it's used improperly, but I think actually playing to the, the our age group, the people that grew up with this franchise and making these um, Toy Story installments like 
kind of appeal to us as adults while also still appealing to like new kids and stuff is kind of cool. So like they, they know that they're playing on people that grew up with it, but they're doing it in a smart way while also getting new people to watch it. So in this case, I would allow any type of nostalgia they want to throw at me as long as they just make a good movie around it. And I think they, they kind of found that that balance. And, of course, it was nominated for Best Picture as well as Best Animated Picture. It's the, the third one to do it. Um, you know, the first one was Beauty and the Beast, uh, and then, of course, Up, and then Toy Story 3. So, yeah, uh, all around great film. I still think it's the best one in the franchise uh, out of all four of them. If I had to rank them, uh, it, it still affects me uh, just even thinking about it. So I'm not going to think about it because I'm going to start crying. Um, but yeah, Toy Story 3 is not only hands down the best animated film of that year. I know Joel might slightly disagree and say How to Train Your Dragon. I think they're it's close, but I would give the edge to Toy Story 3. But it is also one of the best pictures of that year. So that is my number five. Well, it's fitting because it's my number four. So there you go. Yeah, I, I, we'll get to we'll get to my favorite animated movie of the year, and you're right about what it is. Oh, in a second. oh gee, I wonder um, what it is. I mean, because you you <laughs> right. said it a while. I, I think it was when we were reviewing the third one, and you mentioned mm-hmm. that the first one was still your favorite. So uh, I just yeah. remembered that. Yeah, but but Toy Story three is fantastic. It's also got some of the funniest stuff in the in the franchise too. I I have to. I I literally die, nearly die. Laughing every time I see Mr. Potato Head slap the pieces of his of his face and his arms onto a tortilla and <laughs> yep. try to walk is abs- it's like it's like Tati level humor. It's Charlie Chaplin level humor. It's it's hysterical to witness. And then he shows up later on as a cucumber. It's great. Anyway. It's a special movie. That final playtime, too. I mean, even more so, I think, uh, for at least for me, than than the incinerator sequence was really something to cry about. Um, yeah, it's it's a special it's a special movie. I just will just say I agree with everything you said and move on to my number. Uh, uh, I I guess no, I'm sorry. Well, to your that, number four. <laughs> that was your number four. So that was would, my number four. Yeah, it would I go threw myself off, folks. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah uh, my number four. Probably my – yeah, it is my last, like, fun one <laughs> before we get into, like, the serious stuff. Um, but my number four, I remember uh, uh, seeing this in a packed theater. And at this point, there were uh, a couple more movies that this director has done. But I don't, I don't think they really caught on in America. I think this was the first one – while it did bomb – I think more American audiences were in tune with it, and so giving him a fair shot when he had more movies coming out. What am I referring to? Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I, I, I love this film. Um, just from an editing standpoint, post-production, it is insane. It is bonkers. It is a comic book screaming off the page uh, in its style and its aesthetic. Edgar Wright has that visual eye of um, energy and just art. I just I love any movie that he tackles because it fits with um, the genre that he's portraying, whether it be a horror comedy, an action comedy, a uh, end of the world comedy. Um, this one would be a, a comic book, you know, ish movie. Um, you know, uh, it, it is based on um, a, a comic line. 
and he really adapted that uh, with this this film. It's really it's such a breeze to watch. Um, it's like I said, it's really energetic, really fast paced. But uh, most most of uh, his films are that way. Um, they are just well edited pieces. Uh, yeah, my, Michael Sarah is a really uh, interesting lead to carry through this film, and it's, I think it's funny every time when he interacts with one of his exes. And they have a you know a battle or whatever. It's just it's something I didn't really see coming because I didn't read the source material. But I was because uh, I saw it with my friends at the time, and I think I maybe me and two other people were only aware of Hot Fuzz and uh, Shaun of the Dead, and I don't think anyone else was. Um, but they really had a fun time with this one, and it's just a I think it's a visual treat. Um, it's just a really great. Uh, eye candy uh, to watch and I think it's just the way it's put together it could have easily gone the way of a pedestrian director made it something kind of bland or basic but I think injecting that kind of uh, comic book like imagery to it and even uh, down to like the the action bubbles or whatever uh, coming out every time when someone punched someone or whatever it's just it made the experience and people, uh, people dis- disappearing into coins. Yeah, disappearing was into coins. Yeah. It's just it's, it's and, really and the, great. And the stuff. video game noises that accompany that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it's those little touches that make the movie. I mean, you could have easily made this movie and made it uh, not not like that, where maybe someone punched someone and they just they fall on the ground and we move on. But Edgar Wright was like, "Nah, this is based on a fantasy kind of comic line." We're going to go ahead and adapt that full force and go head on with it. And uh, I had a blast watching it. One of, one of my favorite um, theater experiences for sure. It was a packed house. And I actually walked out of that theater going, oh, wow, this movie's going to make a lot of money. Nope. <laughs> it pretty much uh, tanked. And I was actually surprised that Edgar Wright got more work, but I'm glad he did. Um, but yes, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, a very, very fun watch indeed. Yeah, this one is so so much fun. It's it's an honorable mention for me outside of my list with stuff like you stuff that you've mentioned like the town and, and 127 hours. It's it's out there with them, and um, it is so much fun. I, you know, it's not it's not on the level of the World's End, which is my favorite of his movies this decade. But uh, I, but I it's, agree. I, I really like that one quite a bit. Yeah, it's uh, but it's fantastic, and it's it's uh, it's really. Really funny, really visually cre- uh, creative, and uh, yeah, and kind of uh, kind of smartly satirical too. All right, my number three is the last documentary I wanted to mention. Uh, it's the best documentary of this year, and probably my favorite documentary of the whole decade. I don't know if it's the best, but it's my favorite, and it's called Exit Through the Gift Shop. Um, this one is a real treat. So it's a real oddball treat, though. Um, Basically, the concept here is that there's a filmmaker named Terry Guetta who is basically – he's kind of a French shopkeeper. Um, he wants to make a documentary, and he wants to make a documentary about an underground artist because he's been really f- kind of fascinated by graffiti art. And he decides that he's going to make a movie about the graffiti artist known as Banksy who's uh, – identity is still a secret and so um he's banksy's an artist whose work has been in palestine in new orleans he's all over the place he's extremely 
uh, secretive and protective of his identity or his or her identity, really. But then something strange happens when Guetta is kind of um, following Banksy around on his different uh, on his different little missions and his different little uh, exhibitions. Banksy decides that what he's going to do is he's going to turn the camera around on Guetta because he fi- he feels that he finds Guetta a lot more interesting than Guetta finds him. And so because of that, the director credit here goes to Banksy. So it is literally a movie about Banksy in a way that has been directed by him. So it's kind of the ultimate Banksy art uh, installation. And this is a guy with some really strange installations. (laughs) So that's saying something. And it's just a fascinating kind of uh, discussion and uh, an examination of what art is. Is it a joke? Is it uh, kind of a work of exorcism? Is it worth it in the end? And what does all was it, what does it all mean? And it's just it's just fascinating. It's fun. Risa Fons narrates this one um, with sort of what I was talking about with Matt Damon. He kind of inserts his own. Um, eccentric personality into the into the narration and it just kind of ends as something that it does not start as and i think that that kind of complete 360 or 180 whatever the phrase would be from from one thing into another thing entirely especially considering both things are fascinating just really make it just an incredible piece of documentary filmmaking it's not anything like you'll like what you'll see in another documentary. It's very, very unique, very boots on the ground, uh, in retrospect. And it's just, it's just fantastic. It's one that I own as well. Um, it's not an easy DVD to find. It's via a company, uh, a distribution at home company that went out of business a while ago, but it is one of my prized possessions. It's a fantastic movie. And, um, and yeah, worth worth seeking out. So, is this another one that you've not seen, or have you seen this one? No, I have not seen it, but I heard so many great things about it because it was nominated for uh, an Oscar, right? Yeah, yeah, I believe I believe it lost actually to Inside Job, but it was uh, it was nominated for for that category. Yeah, and and in fact, I think it's still the only. Um, and this was something that I'm not I'm not making this up uh, or coming up with this, but it is I think the only movie ever directed by somebody who barely exists. Essentially, like we don't know who this person is. It's literally directed. It's like the only Oscar-nominated documentary ever directed by somebody who's essentially anonymous, which is which is fantastic. I just think that that's so funny. I think that that's. Um, kind of the icing on the cake of that joke. And I know that, uh, he kind of rejected all of that hype, but it's still, it was still worthy of that nomination for sure. And, um, yeah, it's a fantastic movie. So definitely one to see, definitely one to seek out. Um, I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere. I haven't looked into that, but it is, it is available on DVD somewhere. So, um, definitely see this. All right. So what is your number three, sir? First of your, uh, as you call them, ser- serious choices. Yes, the, the, the serious, more depressing choices. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure Joel and I, we, we already know it, it is a, it's a crap shoot at this point. We already know what our number one is. Uh, I don't <laughs> even have to guess. Uh, my number three, um, it, it's really hard for me to decide what is two and three. 
of this year. They could flop back and forth on any given day. But I think with this day, I decided to go with Black Swan as my number three. Um, and I'll leave my number two uh, for you guys to find out in just a second. Uh, but yes, uh, everything that Joel says is correct. A film about perfection and madness and how it can affect someone uh, and and their profession. Given this case, a, a ballet dancer that pushes herself to the limit. She goes mad. She goes uh, just crazy with perfection on her mind. She needs to be perfect at all uh, points during the day. And if you look at the history of like ballet dancers and even uh, uh, them up until this point, it's a very competitive uh, sport. Uh, and you, the instructors are really meticulous on like, you know, every single move that they do. And so it's a really kind of, um, it's a mentally exhausting, um, type of sport. And so, you know, with this one, you know, Natalie Portman is kind of like a goody two shoes. And so she's, you know, she's like, all right, I want to do this, you know, and stuff. And her instructor, uh, Vincent Cassell is just like, uh, if you want this part, you gotta act. Uh, you gotta act bad. You gotta. You gotta want it. I want to see that fire in you, and so that kind of lights a fire under her to kind of do this. The only problem is she goes a little bit mad, and so she sees herself becoming an actual black swan. And the final sequence of this movie is one of my favorite um, third act climaxes, next to like something like a whiplash or something, where once it once it happens. And once it has her on the ground and she says, you know, uh, the line, it was perfect, I am perfect uh, type of deal. It's like it, it's like this really kind of like cathartic release because you have all this tension built up throughout the entire movie because it is a psychological horror film. Um, and just when it releases like that and it go and the it, it fades into an all white screen. I'm like, wow, what a great experience. And I I hated where I sat in the theater for this one because I sat in the first row <laughs> because uh, all the seats were, were sold out because Aronofsky was huge at this time. And uh, I sat in the very first row, so I had to break my neck to watch this movie. But uh, I loved it so much, and I just walked out going, Natalie Portman's got the Oscar. She's got this in the bag. Um, and I was a huge you know, Aronofsky fan up until that point. I really liked Pi and I love Requiem for a Dream. I'm one of the weird people out there that can watch that movie um, and then replay it five years from now and uh, still be like gut punched from it and be like, I'm never watching it again, man. And then I go back to it. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I, I, I've always found that Aronofsky is a interesting filmmaker for sure. And I know his movies are very kind of hit or miss for people, and even extreme hits or misses for some people. I do think that uh, Black Swan is probably probably the more commercial one I could recommend to someone if they were ever wanting to see an Aronofsky movie. Um, everything else I, I wouldn't even suggest to like uh, moderate film watchers like. Hey, which Aronofsky movie should I watch? Uh, watch The Fountain. You'll be fine. Uh, and then you'll you'll cry in the fetal position for three days because you want to know uh, what the heck was going on. Um, but yeah, Black Swan, a, uh, a tale of uh, perfection 
and pushing people to their limits uh, just really well. And, and I think a, a, lo- a lot of uh, people don't really talk about the use of um, practical and CGI in this movie. It's a very low-budget indie film that utilizes some really creative uh, cinematography that deals with a lot of effects that are really masked and well-hidden um, to kind of appeal to its low-budget nature. Um because I believe it was shot on film, and so it just, you know, it just really kind of adds to the experience, kind of blended in with that. So, yeah, I uh, wanted to bring that up. But um, Natalie Portman is fantastic, and then uh, Mila Kunis is, is is pretty good in the movie too. Um, a lot of people don't give her enough credit as well. So, yeah, it's um, it's a special movie. And then uh, my number two is, you know, uh, we'll get to it, but it's uh, really depressing as well. <laughs> it's just uh, I. I uh, Joel, I don't know if you know this, but I just um, I'm very attracted to damaged souls, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that, that's what I like watching. Well, there we go. All right, my number two, yeah, uh, it's been hinted at, but it is How to Train Your Dragon, uh, which is my favorite uh, animated film of the entire decade. Um, I'm pretty I'm pretty confident in saying that this movie is just incredibly special. It's the story of a Viking boy named Hiccup, voiced by Jay Baruchel. Pretty good month for him. With uh, between that and she's out of my league, <laughs> by the way, um, came out the week I think the week or two before this. Anyway, Hiccup is a Viking boy who is kind of scrawny and slight compared to his father and their friends and all of that. And there's this ongoing battle between the Vikings and dragons, which are kind of secretive and thought to be all dangerous, especially the Night Fury that uh, Hiccup runs into, but he forms a bond and tries to prove to his father and the other Viking leaders that dragons aren't as dangerous when it appears that really he's just, you know, this particular night fury is just kind of harmless. And, uh, it's just a beautiful, simple story with absolutely gorgeous animation. Uh, the best score of 2010 for me, um, via John Powell and, um, uh, just a beautiful, lovely simple extremely emotional sometimes very funny incredibly well voice acted um incredibly well tone managed just piece of animation it's the best of the three i think and it is yeah the best animated movie of 2010 and and beyond that um it's it's fantastic so that is indeed my number two chase was right about what my favorite animated movie was and i've mentioned that before too um, I love yeah, this I mean, movie. we well to be fair, we gushed about all three of them on that yeah. uh, episode. It, it's a great, it's just a great franchise, man. I yeah, I'm so glad it, it's ended. It wrapped up its story, and it's just a really, really nice like three film um, arc that you could show to anyone. I think they could really appreciate. It. And I said this in the third one when we were when we reviewed it. But I'll say it with the first one as well. I'm so glad that DreamWorks. Um, came out with a lot of movies that treated children like adults and they were a little bit more mature, little edgier and, um, got, got kids excited to watch a movie and didn't treat them like they were dumb. You know, with like, with like Shrek, they, they had like a bunch of like hidden adult jokes that obviously if we watch now, it's like, Oh wow, that's a little risque, but I kind of like that. I like that kind of risk that you take with these, these films and this one, played out in, you know, this epic 
kind of like fantasy Game of Thrones for kids almost. And mm-hmm. um, just like with the Toy Story films, I think this is also one of the better voice casted uh, franchises. Jay Baruchel as uh, as Hiccup is inspired casting. It, it's so great because he fits the animation of his character, his inflections, everything about uh, every line of dialogue that he speaks. It's just, it's so believable. Whether the way he... his voice cracks, which is a natural thing, his voice right. always tends to crack a little bit. Whenever he speaks, he's kind of got this nebbish kind of inflection that makes it a little nasally. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's perfect. He's, he's just, he's great. Have, have, and, you, uh, have you realized when you watch the movies, like in the first one, he's a kind of teenager ish and he, he cracks his voice a lot more. And then when you get to the third one, he's more confident. He's more of a leader to his community. Like it's, it's a, even in his voice inflections has had growth. And so with the character, so yeah, it, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Like I, you heard Joel, say his piece um all three of them are fantastic please 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 watch them uh and show your kids um something great um i think they'll i think they will enjoy it you will enjoy it and uh, have fun with those uh you know so joel joel was like hey my number two is this really wonderful family film uh really great film for kids uh my number two is blue valentine uh so (laughs) yeah here we go with that um so I think because I in my eyes I count it as an NC-17 movie because it was rated that they didn't cut anything from it to get the R so I classify as NC-17 so I will say that this was my first one uh in theaters cuz I watched uh Shame the year after that so um I was by myself uh I worked at the theater at the time I saw it after one of my shifts and I was completely blown away. Now you got to keep in mind that I had no idea who Derek C. in France was. Um, I didn't see hardly any Ryan Gosling films up until that point. Yes, I saw The Notebook. I still like that movie to this day. But that was that was it. I, I didn't really see anything else dramatic wise from him. And Michelle Williams was also kind of in the same uh, camp. I didn't really watch much of her, so I was introduced to mostly everyone involved with this movie. And my God, what a first one to jump into. Um, It is a heart-wrenching story. And even the way it ends, like, it still makes me tear up to this day. Uh, You cannot see it right now, but my eyes are watering. Just knowing where these characters kind of end up and where the movie started, the hope that you have for them as as a couple... In yeah, definitely where, don't definitely don't say anything specific because I haven't seen this. But right, anyway. um, <laughs> but it, it, the the movie is um, about a marriage uh, between Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. Uh, it, it cuts between modern time and uh, uh, flashbacks to where they were kind of like first dating and then first got married and stuff, and just seeing the stark contrast between the two um, uh, story threads is pretty great because they're wildly different. Um, but that's all I'll say for Joel's sake, um, just so I, I don't want to spoil anything. But it, it's a great love story in the sense that they have rock star chemistry together. Um, you believe that they're husband and wife. And then as their relationship gets a little rocky, gets a little you know further along into their lives, just seeing it, kind of 
you know, be a little rocky and seeing the actors adapt to those situations and from where they started, it's it's just a master class in acting. Seeing Gosling and Williams kind of go at each other like that when you just saw in the previous flashback they were so lovey dovey. It's it's really it's really great in that sense, but it's heartbreaking knowing that there are couples like this that, that you know, go through stuff like this. And I don't know where, you know, Derek Sanfranc got his inspiration to do something like this. I think it might have been his parents. I'm not really sure. But um, it's uh, if you like romance films, but you don't like the glossiness of, like, the Hollywood system of Romance films, you want to see something a little, little bit more adult, um, more mature, edgier, grittier, more realistic. I think this is the one for you. It's not an easy watch. It will rip your heart out um, as you're watching it, and the end will just kind of leave you speechless on that that front. But it's so um, uh, masterly directed by uh, by Sam France and. Just the way he kind of balances going back and forth between the two. It's also a testament into the editing. Um, doesn't really feel like a slog. It feels like you you want to know how this relationship started and seeing it in modern time and just seeing the the kind of grounded groundedness of this film because it, it, in some parts it's actually even shot like a almost like a docu- uh, documentary. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of crazy on that front because you feel like you're watching. Real life people go through these problems, but it you know it's uh it's fictional. Um, yeah, it's 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 great. I don't know what else to say. It's my first introduction into drama Gosling, and I'm so glad I did. Um, it, it is I, I think one of his best. If I had to do a top three right now, um, and he's done a lot of great ones. Uh, Derek Seenfronts, uh, he will always hold a special place in my heart because. If it wasn't for him coming into Dallas, coming into into town, I would have not skipped work to go stand in line for the place beyond the pines. I would have not met uh, Risa, the the lady that Joel and I do reviews for, and I would have never uh, gotten into press screenings. So <laughs> Derek Seenfronts is uh, the reason why um, uh, I do what I do now as a hobby. And so uh, thank you, sir, for that. But yeah, Blue Valentine. If you're into the romances, I would say go for it, but just be careful. It, it's uh, it's not all hopeful and lovey-dovey, uh, and it's also a really hard R, um, so just keep that in mind. Just, just in case if like you want to ask your significant other tonight, like, hey, you want to watch Blue Valentine? Like, sure, uh, some yokel on the internet recommended it to me, and then you watch and you go, well, that wasn't really nice. <laughs> so uh, I just keep giving you the fair warning. But uh, Joel, I know Joel hasn't seen it. Uh, do you still have my copy, by the way? Um, no, no, I think Joel... I. Re- I think I returned that to you. Okay, I, I was fixing to say I didn't. I was like, you know, I don't. I don't want to throw Joel uh, under the bus on air, but <laughs> I kind of want to. So I was like, did Joel right. give me back my copy? But you no, know, I, I let Joel uh, borrow it and. Uh, I never uh, got it watched. I I don't I don't know what happened there. I think I just probably was never in the mood, and I and I heard it was one that you have to kind of get yourself yeah prepared for it. I know that I need to watch it before the end of the year, um, just to catch up with it. And I do have several, about maybe two dozen movies, something like that that I'm that I that I have on a list that I need to really catch up with before 
the end of the year comes, uh, I know that I need to do that. So it'll, it's one that I, it's, you know, I've seen his other two movies now. I've, I saw a place beyond the pines. I saw light between the oceans. I wasn't enormously satisfied with light between the oceans. I thought that, that was kind you, of, you, yeah, sappy. you and I both, both weren't. So yeah, I, but, but I, uh, place beyond yeah. the pines was good. Yeah. This, this I've heard is still his best movie. So yeah, I, I uh, agree. Yeah, for sure need to see it all right well we we do definitely have the same movie at number one now to return to a thought that i had at the beginning of the list um there are indeed three movies that kind of are the boring traditional answers of you know um are you are ones that you would have on this list because they're the ones that kind of critics and audiences gravitated toward the most obviously and you know inception was one of those um it wasn't on your list but it was on mine and then i would say that toy story 3 was another uh certainly a common common answer that was on both of our lists and uh, both of our top fives and now we have the third one which i think is probably the most common um yet i cannot deny it and that is indeed the social network um david fincher's uh very well and screenwriter Aaron Sorkin's very liberal kind of adaptation of a Ben, Re- ben Mesrick nonfiction account of the creation of Facebook called The Accidental Billionaires. Um, of course, it's not really a direct adaptation. It doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be a documentary because really what this is, I think, is sort of a modern-day Citizen Kane. It's very much uh, examining the same things um the price of like celebrity which is kind of an old hat you know uh thing to study but this one finds new ways to do that the um sort of the ego of the king in his in his uh in his throne almost um it's extremely uh shakespearean in a certain way i think that there's um yeah, there's just a lot going on here in terms of its editing by uh, Kirk, Baxter, Kirk Baxter and Angus Wall. It was their first of two Oscars, one for, for David Fincher. The second one was um, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake that he that Fincher did the following year. But I think that this is the more complex editing, uh, sort of procedural editing that I thought was – just thrilling to watch some of the best film editing of this entire decade, I think, um, as it as it shifts between three storylines. You have what kind of two storylines, but three places in the history of this. So you have a couple of um, depositions being held by both um, Mark Zuckerberg's business partner Eduardo Saverin, and also between Zuckerberg and the people. Uh, whose idea he possibly took the Winklevoss twins, Tyler and Cameron. And then you also have the past, which is his kind of um, what happens before all of this, which is his actual creation of the, um, of, of the Facebook soon to be Facebook in 2004, um, 2003 and four really. And really what just, what shines through is again, this, this kind of study of the kind of the deposed king by the end of this movie, he's pretty much gained a lot of money. He's become the, you know, the world's youngest billionaire or the fastest moving billionaire as well. 
and yet he's also kind of lost everyone who could potentially have been close to him and he's been you know sued by three different people including his best friend and all of the women in his life kind of hate him because he's a jerk um or he at least he's trying to be a jerk i should say as it as it comes up at the end of this movie um but really it's just a tremendous accomplishment in screenwriting and storytelling there's there's a real sense of uh a kind of bringing out the complexities of the of the different moving pieces of this story in a way that is very cinematic both on Sorkin's part through the dialogue and his way of structuring and through Baxter and Wells editing between the the rhythms of the um the depositions it's just uh, that's particularly amazing to witness but also just through the character of Mark Zuckerberg as as kind of a um as kind of a citizen kane of his time He's wanting to make a an enormous difference on the entire kind of infrastructure of the internet, something that he loves for Citizen Kane. It was a newspaper industry. And it was it's just it's just an incredibly um com- visually and conceptually complex telling of the story, plays with time in a really interesting way, plays with our perception of who is um, who is the sympathetic voice in the story? Because we get multiple possibilities, but even they have shortcomings. I think uh, there's no hero in the story. I don't. I, I don't. I think that we can say that pretty, uh, pretty, you know, confidently. And it's just, it's just a great movie. It's, it's a great movie. Movie. It's imminently watchable. It's incredibly well edited, well acted by everybody here. Jesse Eisenberg's performance is is a marvel, and uh, I also love the uh, love Army Hammer, who plays both of the twins. Although he was um, he technically did work only as one of them. The other one was um, uh, motion capture done by another actor, but um, but he plays both of them, and it's a great performance, great dual performance. He plays twins, but somehow. Uh, makes them distinctive enough that you can tell them apart. And also Andrew Garfield, great, great performance from him. I thought that it, uh, it should have been nominated and, um, yeah, just, and also great, uh, cinematography too. this. This thing has terrific kind of lantern lit cinematography that I thought that I think is, uh, constantly great. It's got a very industrial feel to it that I think is, uh, is fitting of the time period and, and of the milieu and, and, uh, of the Harvard grounds and, and everything surrounding them. It's, it's, uh, it's just a great, great movie. And it's probably the most obvious choice to pick for the best film of 2010, but I think it's the right one. Um, it's the one that speaks to me the most from this year. And, uh, it's still in my top 10 of the decade as of this, as of this time right now. So fantastic piece of work. And, uh, it is also your choice, correct? <laughs> Uh, so Furry Vengeance as my number one. Uh, yeah, no, uh, Social Network. I remember, uh, I, I just, when I walked out of the first time I saw this thing, I was just, I was blown away. Um, I think at that point, 
if because I'm trying to recall everything that he did. No, I take that back. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button was my first Fincher film in theaters. Then it was the Social Network. Um, that is exactly my yeah. Because uh, <laughs> my uh, happening too. Yeah. Joel and I were definitely too young to see Seven in theaters in Fight Club. Right. So I missed I missed Zodiac as well. That that came out yeah, about I, a year and a half before uh, Benjamin Button, and I missed I I saw it on DVD later. But yeah. Uh, Benjamin Button was mine as well, so yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which was great because it was a, a, a definitely different introduction to Fincher. But uh, yes. still glad I saw. Yeah. I, I still love that movie. Um, but yeah, uh, Social Network. <laughs> if you would have told me, hey, there's going to be a movie made on the birth of Facebook, I would have told you to stop talking crazy to me. Um, but when you have the sharpness of Aaron Sorkin dialogue. You have the meticulous direction of David Fincher. You have the wonderful kind of calm, cool, and like Joel said, industrial look to it. The cinematography is so crisp. It's so clear. And then you have the chaos of the story as a good contrast in the, the intrigue, the, the, you know, um, the legal drama, the, uh, just everything going on between him and his friend and the Winklevoss uh, twins and even his own uh, relationship with like his girlfriend or like uh, his lawyers. It's just, it's stuff that you would think on paper would not be interesting in the slightest. But when you bring all these like creative minds together, you create something special. Um, Everything about it is like I said, to a T like pretty much perfect it's fincher is a very perfectionist type of director uh he's very notorious for doing like 120 something takes uh for a scene um uh, especially like the opening of this movie um i think eisenberg said you know they they did a lot (laughs) and uh he definitely memorized his lines (laughs) and stuff and that also has to do with sorkin being a perfectionist as well Every time when he writes a script, they they are pretty much required to do word for word. No improv, no sidetracking. It needs to be his dialogue. And so, yes, is it a little a little um, kind of uh, – I would say it's probably a, a pretty stressful work environment to have an Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher on set. But I think what you get out of it is a great, a great product. So if you can put in the work, um, then you're going to create – um, Joel, in Joel and I's opinion, one of the best of the decade. So there's that. Also, um, you've pointed out a lot of great stuff in this. Um, another thing that stands out to me is the score. It's one of the best scores in the past ten years. Yeah, um, I forgot to mention. Yeah, that. Reznor, it, like he he he's kind of like this chameleon, and he kind of just kind of hops on different projects that you would never kind of expect him to, and he just he creates something magical where you have the kind of like low rumblings of the score uh, with this movie, and it kind of it's kind of disorienting, and it's chaotic, but it, it's very calm at the same time, and it's kind of like the movie itself. It's just a bunch of people having conversations, but they escalate, they get out of control, but they're like controlled chaos, and so that's kind of like what the score is, and uh, I absolutely love it. It fits the, the tone of the movie perfectly, and Reznor... Um, 
uh, just created something really um, interesting with this movie. We it, we we listened to at work. We listened to the uh, the score for this movie because my our assistant manager makes a lot of mixes of scores. We play like the Bourne trilogy score, right? Um, all of that. Is, speaking of John Powell, <laughs> and um, we play this a lot, and it's it is just gorgeous and it's perfect yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's great it's my second favorite score of that year uh behind how to train your dragon so right it's just love it it's great stuff and um like you said the editing is on point i mean the fact that you're going between like two different timelines and uh you're making it as balanced as you are and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel boring like you're you're always just kind of like just on top uh of the movie like that um it's just it's oh man like I now like talking about it now I want to want to rewatch it but uh yeah I I I still can't believe to this day that a movie about Facebook is one of the best of the decade and probably will be one of the best films ever made when Joel and I perish off this earth and people look back um at film history and stuff it's going to be remembered as a movie of its time um because in 2010 you know, they shot this in 2009. Like, Facebook was, it was on the rise. Like, you know, it was kind of more popular when Joel and I were in high school, kind of like that era. So it, it was kind of like in its infant stages. And so it is a product of its time. It's a well-done product of its time. And I think people will look back and say it is one of the best um, one of the best films out there. And uh, uh, I, I forgot to mention um, the performances. Uh, they're They're outstanding. From Eisenberg and his kind of like, uh, you, you know, um, kind of mouseish, mouseish like uh, like personality. Like he's very like quiet, but he's mouseish. Mouseish. There you go. Um, and, and of course, with Andrew Garfield and that whole uh, scene at the end, it's just it's just great, um, great platforms for acting. But that's what Fincher does. Like he. He is an actor's director for sure. He gets those performances out of his actors. Um, I mean, that's what he's kind of known for. I can't wait for whatever movie he does next. But uh, Social Network, I, I would put it in, I'd say, an easy top three for me in, in terms of uh, for, for him, uh, for Fincher. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know what else more to say. I uh, kind of want to watch it now, again, after we get done recording. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, Social Network, our favorite film of 2010. Um, just real quick, I'll go over uh, my list just for um, you guys keeping track at home. Uh, uh, 10, Harry Potter, Deathly House Part 1. 9, Kick-Ass. 8, The Town. Uh, 7, 127 Hours. 6, Buried. 5, Toy Story 3. 4, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. 3, Black Swan. 2, Blue Valentine. And 1, Social Network. Joseph, what are your top 10 of that year all right so at number 10 i had inception number nine creation <laughs> it's kind of funny that those are by each other because they both mean the same thing um <laughs> <laughs> creation and inception uh number eight black swan number seven catfish number six winter's bone number five inside job number four toy story three number two I mean, number three, uh, sorry, I said three, and then I followed that up. Uh, number three, Exit Through the Gift Shop. Number two, How to Train Your Dragon. And my pick, also for the best film of the year, The Social Network. So, yeah, really, uh, obviously, great movie right at the top there. We both agree on it. Um, I think that's one of the few instances that in, like, Moonlight, I'm pretty sure are the only right. instances so far of us agreeing on what the best film of the year is. 
Um, so that's pretty cool. I, uh, so, I like, so oh, now yeah. that we are, are done with this journey, would you like to let people like tease the people in terms of like what we're going to do for, you know, uh, maybe, a the, the eventual best of the decade list episode type of deal? Right. So I'm still kind of formulating it in my mind. I'm thinking that we might very well do a two parter. Um, because I think that I want to do more than 10, you know, just, just maybe, maybe, but I may scrap that it's still in the, it's still kind of in these, in these infancy stages of development. I'm, I'm definitely going to come out, uh, come, come up with something solid here very soon because I don't want to keep, uh, for, you know, uh, for instance, chase, <laughs> uh, in question about this. I also kind of want to do a list of the most overlooked films of the decade, just to kind of put some, some movies on people's uh, radar because there were a lot of really good movies that that kind of went by the wayside didn't make a lot of money or just weren't seen by a lot of people um maybe because of the period of the year that they that they came out or they were overshadowed by other movies or whatever and uh creation is certainly going to be one of those for instance and um yeah so certainly we're going to be giving giving you guys a lot of good uh you know kind of accolades at the end of this decade because it was a good decade it was a good decade, and uh, and I just I, I definitely want to finish it off for sure. So, some good plans. All right. Well, that has been episode two hundred and eighty six. Um, next week we are back on the regular schedule. We we are skipping all of the releases from this weekend in order to get back on the regular schedule, and we have a review of one of one uh, a movie I'm really excited for, which is Blinded by the Light. A friend of mine that I trust called it the Sing Street of this year, which is really high praise. And uh, I can't wait to see that come to life. So um, really interesting premise. Should be a really interesting movie. And that is next week's episode, 287. Um, And in the meantime, you can find my writing at joelonfilm.com. I've got reviews this week for Dora and Scary Stories, as well as a couple of movies that um, are now streaming ask dr ruth and the intruder you can find reviews for all of those at my website by tomorrow morning and uh you can also find a review of the peanut butter falcon at dallasmoviescreenings.com you can follow my ramblings at on twitter at uh real joel copling and on letterboxd at j copling you'll find my reviews uh that are that link through to my website so um yeah, that's where I am on the internet. Chase, what about you? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Real Chase Lee. If you guys want to follow the podcast Twitter page, it's at Real Me and Podcast. If you guys want to follow this uh, specific uh, podcast on any of the social media platforms, you know, we got Castbox, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Apple, you know, Spotify, uh, Spreaker itself, you know, uh, just all that stuff. You know, if you are listening to it, spread this around. And let people know this is what you like listening to. As far as reviews coming up, to look forward to me for mini reviews um, this Sunday. Uh, so I guess two days from now, I will drop a Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark mini review. I will have an Angry Birds uh, movie 2 review mini review uh, before next Tuesday at some point. Because that's when it opens. It opens up Tuesday morning. So I don't know when the embargo in or lifts because I see it tomorrow. So just look out for it. Uh, and then I will also have a Good Boys uh, mini review as well uh, before uh, the next week's uh, episode. So those are the three mini reviews I got dropping 
uh, this week. So look out for those. Um, I think that's it. But yeah, this is a uh, it's been episode two hundred eighty six. Joel, it's been uh, quite quite fun. Um, I'm glad that the uh, discussion of the best films of 2010 definitely outweighed the discussion of Hobbs and Shaw because I would have been really disappointed if Hobbs and Shaw was good and we spent two hours talking about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that will do it for this episode of 286 of the Real Me and Cole in the Movie Podcast. I am Chase Lee. That is Joel over there. And we will see you guys next week for 287 for Blinded by the Light. And uh, just for that <laughs> terrible scene, I'm going to go uh, get off the internet for at least 24 hours before I come back on. Uh, that was really, really embarrassing. So, once again, I am Chase. That is Joel. You guys are awesome. We'll see you guys next week uh, for another episode. And, uh, yeah, I guess just uh, have a good night, good day, and uh, whenever you listen to this, bye-bye. Bye.